Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we are playing it, we will be talking about it. Today, we are recording on April 10th, 2018. My name is Corey Motley. I am a staff writer at GameCritics.com, and I am 50% of this show. With me, as always, is Brad Galloway. He is the editor of Game Critics. He's also the other 50% of the show. How are you doing, Brad? Uh, I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Had a really crazy morning, uh, just running back and forth, doing things, trying to focus and get in the podcast zone. But actually, I can't <laughs> relax too much because we have a rather unusual show today, don't we, Corey? This is true. So this show... Um, just to give everybody a little idea of the format, we're not really switching up the format that much, but we're going to start as usual, talk about video games. Brad and I have a few games slated to talk about, not as many as usual. Some shows we have like 11 games that we talk about. Today, we only have three, um, and they're all, I, I assume Brad is going to gush a lot about the game he's uh, talking about today, but my uh, picks are going to be rather quick. I say that now, so if they're not quick, then... Hold me to it and let me know on Twitter if uh, I talk too much about my games. But we're going to talk about the games first, as usual. Um, sometimes we talk about the time loop when we record, because usually we record the banter first, and then we cut it and put it at the very end of the show so people who want to stick around can listen to that. But we did not do that this week. Um, this week, we have a big Q&A session. I mean, I guess it's not that big, but the questions are kind of meaty, but it's not a ton of questions. Um, so we are kind of replacing banter with a big Q&A uh, at the end of the show. And a lot of the reason why we're doing that this week is because a lot of the questions are not game related. They're more about uh, Brad and I's experiences in life. I mean, there's like one or two game questions in there, but some of them are about our life experiences and just some other things. So we're going to get into the games. We're going to talk about those first. And then at the end of the show, we're going to do kind of a big Q&A and that'll kind of be a pretty big meat uh, section of the show. I use the word meaty and meat already, and we're only like two minutes into recording. So, um, Brad, have I left anything out that's important that anybody should know? I think that sums it up pretty good, but I do want to give a heads up to people. I feel like there's going to be a lot of really bad jokes and puns on this episode. Oh, I feel God. like we're just, we're brimming with them right now. So <laughs> I can feel them bubbling up. Get ready, folks. There may be, there may be more bad humor than you can handle in this episode. Uh, and that's saying a lot coming from us. I know, right? It's going to be way <laughs> over the top. <laughs> well, uh, without further ado, um, if you don't have anything else, uh, any housekeeping stuff to declare, you ready to jump into games? Let's jump into games, man. Absolutely. And I'm very, very, very curious about this first one that you're going to talk about because um, it's kind of an unusual sort of thing. And we have somebody reviewing it at Game Critics. So I've got a little bit of, of story on it from... Dan Weisenberger, who's reviewing it, but I really want to hear your take on Infernium. Tell us about it, Corey. Okay, I am really glad you said that Dan was reviewing this because I thought I was supposed to be reviewing it, and now I'm really relieved that I don't have to. <laughs> no, see, that is the beauty of having that is the beauty of having a full review site plus a podcast. We actually have enough staff and game critics to where we don't like one person doesn't need to do both things anymore. So like you can be like the podcast dude. Dan can be the review dude, or we have several review dudes, and, uh, you know, like, we can split it up that way. So, yeah, you just you tell us about it now, and then your obligation is over. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, okay, let's talk about Infernium. So, 
There's a game called Infernium that is out on, it came out on April 3rd, so that was just like a couple of days ago. Um, or actually, that was like last week, now that I think about it, the 3rd. Today's like the 10th. What am I doing? Um, anyway, uh, it came out on PC. I think it's on PS4 and Xbox One. Um, the developer name is Carlos Coronado. So I'm going to assume that th- he did it himself, the whole game. I don't know if that's true or if Carlos Coronado is like a fancy development name, kind of like a law firm, how it's like two last names put together always. Um, but that's the only info I could find. So this is a first-person, non-linear, kind of like puzzle horror game that is supposed to be, from what I can gather, about kind of like journeying through the layers of hell, I think is what it's about. And I know that there was a description for it somewhere on like the game's website or on the PlayStation 4, like on the PlayStation Network, because I'm playing it on PS4, but I didn't really pay that much attention to it. I just remember it saying that it was like about journeying through hell and that it was like nonlinear or something like that. So I started it last night and um, so it's kind of one of those games that just kind of drops you in. It doesn't really say a whole lot. And sometimes I can get super on board with that. And sometimes I can not get super on board with that. And this game definitely falls into the latter of those two for me. So you start the game. It's first person. Um, whenever you move the character around, I don't know if you're a man or a woman, but their hands are like kind of up in the screen. Um, and you kind of start on this like big, like, castle pillar kind of thing and it's like a really beautiful kind of like vista in front of you i mean it's by beautiful it's like beautiful by health standards because it's kind of like orange and it looks kind of desolate and it's kind of like industrial and smoky but it looks really nice um and there's you have this kind of like um kind of like the blink ability in dishonored where you can use your right hand to kind of like cast a teleport laser somewhere and then once you have to like hold it down for like three or four seconds before it fully materializes and then you kind of like teleport to that area and whenever you teleport it uses up a certain amount of energy and I think the energy meter is like instead of the game having like a heads-up display or like meters or graphics on the screen I think the the energy meter is uh, like a little like kind of like lightning bolt looking thing on the person's finger. So like whenever you're looking at their hand, you can kind of see how much energy they have based on this little like gauge on their finger, which is kind of nice because I like um, I like minimal design. I, um, you know, I don't mind good uh, visual design and good heads up displays in games, but I also like being able to like look at the fucking game and not have to look at like all this uh, stuff on the screen. So that's nice. And then there's these orbs in the world where you kind of like, absorb the energy from the orbs and there's a finite amount in them to like refill the little meter on your hand so it kind of starts out kind of like a platformer and you're on this like pillar thing and there's a little you walk over to this portal looking thing and like it opens up and there's an instruction thing and it says something about how you can like absorb the energy and then you walk up to another one and it talks about how you can teleport and so you know obviously it wants you to test the teleport mechanic right then and there so you teleport over to a pillar that's like next to you I think you absorb some energy from an orb on that pillar, you teleport back, and then eventually you come to a bridge, and there's a hole in the bridge, you teleport across it, and then you kind of walk through this, like, castle-looking area, and then I walk around the corner, I'm in this, like, castle room kind of thing, and there's, like, a little bit of a maze in it, and I go out to 
another bridge and it's like an old kind of dusty wooden drawbridge and there's this kind of like caped figure thing on the other side of the bridge it looks kind of like if a person were invisible but they're like wearing kind of like a journey style cloak um that's what it looks like and so as i move closer to this entity that's on the other side of the bridge um i get probably like 10 feet away from it and then this sound effect happens and it starts like floating toward me which really scared me um in a good way though and so i like back my ass up and like try to get out of there because you're on a bridge there's nowhere you can go you can't like jump over it i don't think you can teleport past it and so you have to go back into the building and sort of like let it chase you around this like maze pillar thing in the building and then go back to the bridge so you can kind of get a head start on it go across the bridge and then you have a limited amount of time to use your little like teleport power which can also like move switches and stuff and you like move this switch and then you have to like open a door fast enough to where you can get away from it and uh and it's really scary because the thing's like chasing you and as it gets closer to you it starts making this noise where like you know it's getting close but you can't turn around to look at it because you're trying to like open this door but you know it's right there and it's really scary and you get through the door and the game kind of opens up into a slightly bigger area that feels kind of like a hub world. Like it, this was kind of like the tutorial. Maybe you get to a hub world and there's like these kind of like a castle wall things again. And there's more um, there's like writing on some of them. And it kind of looks like what I can get the gist of is that the game is about like a search team that it's kind of like doom. It's like a search team that made it to hell, but they're not sure if it's hell. And they're like trying to run all of these tests and make sure it's like scientifically, they're trying to like scientifically prove that they are in fact in hell and try to like get that info, I guess back to earth or back to wherever they're from, because they have like tables of these like um, sort of like hazmat suits and there's like documents everywhere and they like write stuff on the castle walls so you can kind of read it but the wall the writing is really hard to miss like I walked by some of them a few times and didn't see them but eventually what the game devolves into from what I can tell it's just kind of like uh, a series of these like mazy areas where you have to like go walk close enough to one of these cloaked figures in order to trigger it to start chasing you <clears throat> And then you have to move back around through some kind of like mazy area. And then sometimes the figure stops or sometimes it keeps chasing you. And you it's, it's kind of like Pac-Man, I guess, now that I think about it. Corey, it's like, Corey, what? Let me what? let me interject just real briefly. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Carlos Coronado is actually a guy named Carlos. I've spoken uh, to him uh, through email. Oh, uh, so okay. I, there is a literal Carlos. And I've heard this game described by Carlos as Pac-Man meets Dark Souls. That's how he described oh it to God. me. So you have stumbled across the formula. You have decoded it. It sounds very much like you're describing Pac-Man running away from ghosts, except for it looks like Dark Souls with scary guys in cloaks, right? That is, yeah, that's exactly what this game is, and I just now realized that. <laughs> but I'm glad that I was able to make that connection first before you told me that, and I'm also glad that you cleared that up for me because that's exactly what it feels like. You walk, it's like if you had Pac-Man, but it's in first person, but the ghosts are not always moving. You have to get within a certain range of them to make them follow you. And then you have to run away from them before they, that's like, Oh my God, this is incredible. That's exactly what this is. Um, but the bad news here is that I don't like this game and it seems like a one trick pony because every time one of the things starts following you, if you don't know like exactly where to go, or if you can't get far enough away from it to like get it to stop following you, um, 
it, it like kills you. Like once it touches you, you die, and then it reloads you into the hub area. And I'm sure that there's checkpoints along the way where if you like clear a maze, then you get back to the hub area with maybe like a different um, like ability. Like I've been led to believe that you can like level up your little like teleport thing in the game to access more switches and stuff like that. Um, but it's not like it's not interesting to me because it's scary, which is good, but it doesn't feel like it earns the kind of scares that it's giving because all it is is you walking around and being chased by these um, by these like robed figures, which is a scary thing. And I did when I was playing it last night. There was a time when I was being chased by one of them, and I like walked around this wall, and I thought that I had outsmarted it. But it came around the other side of the wall to meet me, and it killed me, and I yelped extremely loud in my living room and, like, started sweating a little bit. So that's, like, the good mark of a horror game. But it's not, like, it's not like a Resident Evil 7 Silent Hill kind of horror where, like, I don't want to move forward because I don't know what's out there. It's just kind of, like, a cheap, like, things are chasing you, and it's kind of scary kind of situation. So... Well, hang on a second. Let's let's dig what? into this a little bit because I'm very All curious. Right. I'm very curious about this because right. uh, you have described this as good scary is not bad scary, but now it's like you're saying it's maybe not the best scary. So let's let's talk about scary for a second. Um, so do what that. do you what do you? I mean, you're the horror. You're the horror maven of the show for <laughs> sure. So like, what is what is a good scary to you versus what is a not good scary? I mean, to me, just as my in my layman horror terms, I think bad scare <laughs> would be. A bunch of really cheap jump scares where, like, the volume of the game gets ten times louder and it's just, like, something jumping up on the screen after a quiet moment. Like, that to me is shitty scary and I don't like that because it just gives me a heart attack and it's not really <laughs> interesting. You know, because you can lure anybody into a jump scare. I mean, anybody can do that. It's a very cheap trick. So that to me would be, like, the worst scary. And I think the best scary would be something where I am just genuinely, like, unsettled because I don't know what's going on. and I And I empathize with my character so that I feel very involved. And I feel their fear. Like, that is what I would think of as good scary. So what do you see as good scary, bad scary? And then how does that apply to this game, or does it not? Well, I feel similarly about scariness in games. Like, good scary for me is whenever... um, Whenever something is really disturbing, and it makes me think, and it kind of sticks with me. And I've written about this before. Um, A long time ago, before Resident Evil 7 came out, when I played the demo for it, I wrote um, a piece about the demo, or the first uh, version of the demo that had come out for Resident Evil 7. Um, and I had talked about how I have this, um, this uh, I guess, like a test in my head. It's called the doorway test in horror games. And the doorway test in horror games, it, for me, this is the thing that I think I came up with. If I didn't, then somebody else let me know. Um, it is where um, the the atmosphere or the tension or the dread of the game makes it so heavy for you that you don't even want to proceed forward. Like you, there's an example toward the beginning of the Resident Evil seven demo where you're in a room and the door and you're, it's like an old cabin. The door in front of you is open. You go toward the door. And whenever you get about six feet away from the door, the guy who lives there very casually strolls across the doorway but like in a way where he doesn't see you and you didn't know that he was there prior to this like maybe you suspected that somebody else was in the house but there was no hard evidence of it yet but then you walk by and he walks in front of the door and it's kind of a jump scare because like it's an unexpected thing that happens but it's also not like the music doesn't flare up like there's no like ridiculous sound effects it's just 
him taking like four steps across the doorway. And in that moment, it created an atmosphere where I was so scared that I did not want to move through that doorway because I had no idea what was going to be on the other side. Was he going to be on the other side? Was he going to be um, the direction that he walked to? Was he magically going to be the direction that he walked from? Was he going to be waiting to hit me in the face with a shovel? Um, <clears throat> you know, th there's like a number of possibilities that could happen. And this is a thing that happens with a lot of games, with a lot of other games too. Like, uh, for example, the Silent Hill games. One of the sort of like uh, trademark old school Silent Hill functions uh, that happened a lot in those games is there are a lot of locked doors. Um like you walk up to a door, you try to open it and it's re it sounds really dumb by today's standards, but like the subtitle that comes up says something like the lock is broken. You can't go through this door. Um, and one thing that the doorway test uh, handles for silent Hill games and for other games that do this too, is um, there, there comes a point where I dread what's on the other side of that door so much that whenever I go up to access the door and it says the lock is broken, a, a like wash of relief hits me because <laughs> I, I no longer have to worry about what's on the other side of that door because the lock is broken. Unless, you know, maybe a jump scare happens where something like crashes through the door, but that's pretty rare. Um, what I would give for bad examples of horror would be like, I've said this before, but like Dead Space, like I don't like the dead space version of horror because in those games you know there's alien entities on the station a lot of them uh are dead on the ground and like as you walk up to them you think oh this is a dead like alien on the ground but whenever you get two feet away from them they like jump up off the ground and they attack you or they chase you and that would be effective horror if they only did it maybe once every 20 monsters but instead, they do it every fucking time, and it loses all sense of dread because it gets to a point where it's painting by numbers, where you see a dead thing on the floor, and you say, okay, I guess I better ready my weapon because I know this one's going to jump out just like every other one. Or every vent that you walk past, oh, a monster's going to crash through this vent because it did on the last 15 that I came through. Um, I don't I don't like that kind of horror, and I also don't like the Dead Space kind of horror where their idea of horror is making an intense action situation where... The room's on lockdown. There's ten enemies in the room, and you have to kind of frantically, right, um, like panic, kill fight all kind of, of a them. thing. Yeah, totally. yeah, because that's not that's not scary. That's just intense. And there's a difference between intensity and horror. And I'm not really into that. Um, I've never been. I've played some of Dead Space One, all of Dead Space Two. I've never been into them. I didn't want to try three because. Um, I didn't like the second one, so why would I try three, even though I've heard uh, off and on good things about it. But, th I mean, those are some of my ideas, like, uh, for horror games. And another thing that I always, um, that I've said, I know I've said this on the show before, is that in a horror game, uh, and this goes along with Dead Space as well, the only thing scarier than something happening is something not happening. And um, the, the anticipation and the dread of moving forward because you're worried something will happen will weigh much more heavily than something crashing through a window every five seconds. But a well-timed jump scare is worth its weight in gold, but it has to be so rarely used that it does not become routine. Gotcha. Okay, so that is a very good that is a very good breakdown, and that gives me a much better idea of where you're coming out from horror. So thank you for that explanation. So <laughs> applying that to Infernium then, so this game definitely does not does not cross your horror threshold, I guess, because it seems like what you're talking about is just like constantly being chased, which is maybe just more like intense than it is scary. Would would that be in the ballpark 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it is intense, and it definitely, I mean, it is scary, but it just becomes so routine that every time you see, um, you know, one of these robed figures, and I'm sure there are other, there might be other kinds of enemy types in the game that I haven't seen yet, because I'm only like a half an hour in, but every time you see one, you know it's going to chase you, and you have to think about where you want to go, and how you want to lure it around this maze in order to get where you're supposed to be going, and sometimes uh, you, like the robed figure will be around a corner, a 90 degree turn, uh, turn corner, and th those situations are intense because every time you walk up to a corner, you think, okay, is there going to be a figure on the other side of this? But if you're thinking that about every single corner in the game, it becomes routine. So I, yeah, this game is not, uh, there's not enough atmosphere in this game and there's not enough variation in it for me to really be on board with the horror that it's trying to do, I think. Gotcha. No, that sounds, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if it's kind of a one-trick pony, I mean, no game really survives on being a one-trick pony these days. And I mean, it sounds exhausting too. Like, I mean, I, don't, I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate being chased in games. It's one of my <laughs> least favorite things. I just, I don't like the stress. I don't like the time pressure. I don't like being rushed. That's not what I come to games for. And, you know, once in a while is fine. You spice up a game here and there. It's a little surprise sequence to, you know, keep you off guard or something. I mean, that's okay. But like, in general, I really detest it. So if it's a game all about being chased, I'm going to stay the fuck, like, way far away from this. Like, I don't want to do that. But also just exhausting to, like, have to be on guard all the time. Like, would I really want to, like, get my guard up around every fucking corner in a game? Like, that sounds just, like, ugh, making me so tired just even thinking about it. Yeah, there's, I mean, a good horror game has <clears throat> a lot of sort of, like, lulls in the horror segments but they have to keep the atmosphere up in order to keep the tension there and that the only probably the best example i can think of of a game that does this was layers of fear because that game is very walking simulator-esque where it's rare that you encounter you know an actual enemy or like an entity that's kind of coming after you but the way that the mansion is laid out and the way the art design is and the overall sort of narrative exploration of the game makes it feel like something could be around. Like there's always kind of something going on in the house or maybe there's something watching you. There's a very big sense of dread going on in the mansion whenever you're playing Layers of Fear. But because nothing, you know, something's not chasing you every 30 seconds in the game, it really, uh, it's probably the best example I can think of of something that maintains a dreadful atmosphere for most of the game with very little actual like enemy encounter scenarios. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, so you said you got about, I don't know, half an hour or so into it. And then did you just feel like you just got tired of it and you're going to bail on it? Or did you encounter any problems or what was your, what was your final breaking point? Well, I mean, I did encounter a problem and that would be the entire game design. Um, <laughs> because just uh, a small, because, a small issue yeah. I, I encountered. I mean, and some, and hey, you know, some people might be totally on board with this. I mean, maybe the people that like the Outlast games, maybe this would be kind of their cup of tea because a lot of Outlast deals with, um, you know, hiding from enemies and running from them and that kind of thing and chase sequences and everything. Um, and I don't really get along well with the Outlast games, even though you might think they're up my alley. They're, I've tried both of them and I couldn't get into either of them. Um, so this game probably has an audience out there. However, it's not me. But I was thinking about this uh, sort of on the along the same lines last night when I was playing it. Because most of the time when I take uh, a review game from game critics, like whenever you email, email out uh, games for review or games to talk about on the show... 
you know, more like 98% of the time, I will take a game that I think I'm going to like or that I think I will at least enjoy part of the experience. Because if you send out an email and you're like, oh, here's Madden NFL, like, you know, 2018, like I would never take that because I don't play sports games. So it's not really my kind of thing. Um, and that would be, it would feel unfair to me as a reviewer to take a game like that because I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing if I were playing it. And so... With this game, I thought it was going to be my cup of tea because I'm all about first-person horror. I'm all about, um, you know, basically what this game has going on looks like a thing that's very up my alley. And whenever I started playing it, this is maybe the first time in the history of me being at Game Critics or on the podcast that I started playing a game and immediately thought to myself, like, oh, no, I don't feel qualified to review this because I... Like, I would not be doing anybody any favors if I actually carried this game to review because I don't I don't feel comfortable enough being able to actually finish the game, nor do I really like what's happening in the game enough. And I wouldn't want to review this game and be like, oh, one out of 10, because I don't really kind of I'm not totally on board with what the game is doing because that's kind of unfair to the developer. So I'm glad to hear that Dan um, is to actually taking the real review for this because I feel like Dan might be able to get a little bit more down with this than I am. And I actually wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable reviewing it, but I was, uh, and you can add on to this if you want to, but I was actually wondering like, because this is kind of like a first for me, if you can remember any instances of something like this happening with you or maybe other writers at the site before too. Oh, sure. It happens all the time. I mean, I know I was trying to come up with some examples. I mean, Shit, dude, I've been reviewing games for like literally 18 years in terms of just like being published and re was reviewing games just for fun before that on my own. So, I mean, a long time. And I mean, it's come up a, like a million times. I mean, it's it's a big problem. Uh, in fact, I was actually just talking about this on Twitter the other day um, because I don't think that most critics. I mean, OK, I can't say all critics because I'm sure that there's one or two like people who are like way off the curve or who are real kooky or whatever. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of people. I can't I can't speak for everyone. But I think that most critics, when they approach a game, I don't think anybody really sets out to choose a game that they think they're going to hate from the outset. Like, I don't think that's a normal process for a reviewer. I mean, maybe somebody doesn't know something about a game. Maybe a game is a complete blank slate. I mean, I've done that many times when I didn't know something about a game. I, what is this game? What's it about? I'm not really sure. I saw the cover art. It looks kind of interesting, but I don't know what the deal is. I'm going to give it a try and just see what happens. Like, that's that's about, like, as... as neutral as I go. I'm sure a lot of people otherwise uh, are kind of in the same boat, but most of the time I have a pretty good feeling about what a game is or a pretty good idea of what I think a game is going to be. And I, you know, I try to find the games that I think are interesting or that I would have something interesting to say about or some game that I want to promote because I like it. I think it's really rare that we ever get into a game with the intention of, I think this game's going to suck. I'm going to hate this game. I'm going to review this. And I'm going to trash it. Like, I think very, very few people ever really set out to do that. Uh, and this kind of reminds me of, I mean, yeah, there's been many times when I would get into a game thinking it would be my cup of tea, thinking it would be something that I'd really enjoy. And then once you start playing, it's like, oh, my God, this is not what I expected. Or, oh, this is <laughs> the screenshots make it look way better than what it actually is. Or, you know, we've all gotten into those situations. And it's we have come up with a good answer for that at Game Critics. So, like, in the the freelance or, you know, paid review sphere, I mean, the expectation would be. A, I mean, talk to your editor, and if they can reassign it to somebody else, they probably will, because, you know, like you said, it doesn't do anybody any favors to kind of hate review a game. Like, if you don't like playing it, it sucks for you. 
If you hate this game, you're probably not going to be as fair to it as other people might be. So it's not good for the game either. You mean you want to find a good fit. Not like you only want to find people who are cheerleaders for every game, but I don't think it's a fair thing to have somebody who knows they hate a game or or actively dislikes a game to review it. So hopefully an editor would reassign it. Uh, but in our case, that's not always possible. And it, it's actually doubly not possible these days because we are seeing the disappearance of physical media. So like when Game Critics started, we would get review discs or cartridges <laughs> all the time. And I actually miss that. I mean, in one way, it sucks because somebody can email you a code really quickly and it gets the games in your hands a lot faster. And if I have to send a game to somebody else, I don't have to pay postage. But the downside of that is that once somebody redeems a code, you cannot unredeem it, right? So like back in the day, we would get a disc or a game. You know, sometimes I would try it out first to get a feel for what the game was. And then I would be like, oh, this is this is XYZ game. I think Mike Bracken's going to like this. Or, oh, I think Chi's going to like this. And then I would be able to, as the editor kind of try to match games up with people who I thought would do a good job on the review. Uh, but you can't do that anymore these days. You can't you can't just test out a code and then un, uninstall the code, right? So we often get stuck in this position where somebody thinks they're going to like a game, they're pretty sure they're going to like it, or it's up their alley or whatever. They download the code, cash it in, start playing, oh, this sucks, and now, like, you're stuck with it. Like, you have a code. <laughs> so hopefully you can finish that game up. Otherwise, I mean... What we've done at Game Critics to kind of remedy the situation, I mean, on the one hand, because you cannot unredeem a code, and also because we're not paid. Everybody at Game Critics is a volunteer because we love what we do, and we just really enjoy it, and we've been doing that for many, many years. So we don't want our writers to suffer. Like, we don't want to have to force somebody to just power through a game and hate every minute of it because, I mean, let's be honest, games are really long. Like, if you hate a movie, that's 90 minutes of hate. That's not too much hate. Anybody can handle 90 minutes of hate. But if it's like 60 hours of hate, 150 hours of hate, <laughs> too much hate. Like, I don't want anybody to sit through that much. That's way too much. So in this particular case at Game Critics, what we do is we'll do like a... I, I'm sure you've seen the articles called uh, This Is Not A Review. You're familiar with those? Oh, I've written some, yeah. You've written some. So when this happens, it's kind of like a, a parachute for our writers. Like, if they really get into a situation where they can't give the game back and they really just fucking hate it or something is going wrong... We just have them do like a really quick brief write up to say, hey, I'm the writer. This is my experience. It's not a review because we're not going to tank somebody's Metacritic score based off of an hour of a game if they just really didn't like it right off the bat. But we also want to be very honest about why we didn't like it, what didn't click, what our experience was. And then we just call it good. So maybe we'll have somebody stop playing, write up a couple hundred words and say, yeah, this game didn't work for me because X, Y, Z. So they've covered it. They don't have to suffer through the rest of the game. The, de the developer doesn't get stuck with like some like, you know, a red score on Metacritic that bums them out because we didn't finish the game or whatever. I mean, I feel like that's really the most fair option for everybody. And that's how we do it. So I would it, if you had been stuck with the review for this, I would have said, go ahead and do a this is not a review. But since all you got to do is talk about it on the podcast, you're basically done. So uh, you can wash your hands of this thing. And it sounds like just not a good experience. Um, just as a heads up to people out there, if Pac-Man plus Dark Souls does sound like your thing <laughs> and i'm sh i'm sure it is someone's thing there is always someone out there who likes like whatever game it is you can pick any game literally any game out there and there is somebody out there who loves that game it doesn't matter if i pick anything anything there's somebody out there who like has made like a home page about it or something so <laughs> um 
Dan Weisenberger, like I said, is playing this game. I think he likes it more than you do, but just as a heads up to people, he's having a lot of problems with the save system. Apparently the game has been deleting his saves. And so I have, as editor, told him to stop playing because I don't want him to waste his time on deleted saves. I talked to Carlos, uh, who made the game. He said he's aware of the problem. He's working on a patch. So if you're thinking about buying this, please hold off until he gets that patched. Also, he has been responding to feedback about the game being too harsh and too punishing. So he is also um, working on the difficulty. So as we've often said on So Video Games, the best time to play a game is like a year after it comes out. So this is definitely still in the (laughs) I'm figuring things out phase. So don't jump in right now. Maybe give it a little while, at least a couple weeks, if not longer, before you jump in, if you're thinking about it. Yeah, and I'm guessing, is Dan playing this on PC? I think he's on PS... No, he is on PS4. Confirmed PS4. Oh, okay, interesting. Because I I mean, he's probably a lot farther than I am, but I haven't, I haven't had any technical trouble with the game yet, so that's at least good news on my end. But I'm guessing that he is probably much at a much more advanced stage of the game than I am if, his, if he's been able to get there and keep his saves. Uh, last I talked to him, I believe he said he lost about six hours of progress, which is a pretty big chunk of progress. Oh my god, this game is more than progress. six hours yeah. long. I mean, yeah, I think it's long. He, yeah, he wasn't even done with it. I mean, he was he was not able to progress because he got, like, really far, and he's like, I can't play this whole game in one sitting. And I'm like, of course, please don't do that, Dan. Don't do that. Like, just <sighs> treat yourself nice. You're a human being. It's okay. <laughs> it's just a game. So, yeah, he lost quite a bit of, of um, progress. Uh, apparently, it's a really hard bug to reproduce, um, because sometimes I think that Carlos said he was having trouble pinning it down, but he's working on it. And if you're thinking about this, don't, don't sink some time into until the save bug gets worked out. Cause I would hate to see other people lose a similar amount of progress. That's a lot of time to lose. Yeah. I was under the impression this game was going to be really short. I'm pretty sure on PS4, it's only like a one gig download, which I know that, you know, the side, the size of the game doesn't always, uh, contribute to how long it is, but Oh my god, like I had enough of this game after like 30 minutes. I could not imagine playing it for like 6 or more hours. I would Oh man, I probably would have like clawed my eyes out at that point. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say this one will not be on your top 10 uh list this year. Uh no, but it's going to be in the running probably for the worst game I've played this year. Oh, well, mm. don't talk too soon. There's still like a whole bunch of months left in the year, but let's make a note of that and we'll come we'll come back to it in December. <laughs> we may be talking about Infernium again. So, sounds like not a good fit. I'm glad that uh you only had to talk about it not word of you. Any last words before we move on, Corey? I would like to wash my hands of this game and never talk about it again. All right, let's do that. Let me <laughs> let's wash our hands. Got some soap in the corner. Also got some Purell. Feel free to <laughs> Spread that around liberally. Uh, Let's jump over to my game. I've only got one game to talk about today, folks. I had actually planned to get another couple games in, but I've been working a lot of unusual hours. And every time I sat down to play something, I got called into work. So unfortunately, I've only got one thing to talk about. But it's a good thing to talk about, and I'm actually very excited to talk about it. Today, I will be talking about Metal Gear Survive, which we actually have talked about on the show before. We both played the demo a while back. Do you remember that, Corey? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And if memory serves, our impressions of the demo were, like, not really that great, correct? I mean, I think I played one or two missions with my wife. It was really confusing, and we kind of just, like, did this really simplistic, like, base defense sort of a thing. And you only played, like, uh, like one or two missions also, right? Yeah, I played, like, I think I tried, I played one mission, 
and like kind of sort of beat it even though i didn't get through all the waves and then i tried it again and i think basically the same thing happened and i it's just too it's too much for me i don't understand anything that's going on in this game and i don't have the time or energy to try to understand what's going on in it so i that was enough for me okay so that is very accurate and very much what i remember uh and i will say before i say anything else about this game it's really unfortunate that they did that beta because i really think that that did not do their game any justice uh not at all that was that was one of those games that's like it's like when you go to e3 or when you go to pax and you play a game and you just really just cannot get a sense of what that game is in like a couple minutes. Like it's something bigger than that or needs more of a, a lead in. Uh, that is exactly what Metal Gear Survive is. So I bought the game. I saw it on sale for 20 bucks, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago or something like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm really curious about this. I know a lot of people have been hating on it and they say it's garbage. In fact, I, I put out a message to Twitter and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to start Metal Gear Survive. Any uh, advice for a newcomer? Like, almost every single person was like, delete it, don't start, get your money back, fuck that game. And I'm like, oh my god, grow up, people, please, please. That was literally the only responses I got. Like, I'm not even joking. Literally everyone was, delete it, don't start, play something else. And I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever, people. That is the internet for you. Oh my god, clearly a lot of Kojima fans (laughs) in my feed. Okay, so... I am glad I didn't listen to any of them because you know what? I started playing Metal Gear Survive. I think it's fucking fantastic. I think it is really, really good. Um, I can understand why people maybe were put off by the beta because I think that we didn't really have the best impression of the beta also. Uh, But I will say that when you start the main game... uh, Okay, so back it up a little bit. So again, Metal Gear Survive, this is the... Well, I, I don't even know what number in the series it is because although there have been five mainline Metal Gear games, there's also been like a bazillion offshoots, like the portable games, and there were some earlier ones that were on like, you know, home computer or whatever, so I don't even know what number it is, uh, but apparently it's just like the next one. So this this comes after Metal Gear 5, and this is one where Kojima is not working on it. Hideo Kojima, series creator of Metal Gear, no longer associated with Konami, no longer associated with Metal Gear. This was the, the first Metal Gear game ever produced without his input, and a lot of fans of Kojima, for that reason only, were ready to pour gasoline on it and set it on a fire, which I think <laughs> is really unfair. I mean, we've talked about this before in the show, but Kojima had made no secret he wanted to be off of the Metal Gear series for a long time. Konami kept him on it because that was their big cash cow, and he was getting creatively bored. Like, I mean, it was, it's no, it was not a secret. He didn't want to work on it anymore. He wanted to move on to something else. He wanted to do something else, and Konami wouldn't let him. So there was, like, some animosity going... We don't know all the ins and outs about why Kojima left, but bottom line is Konami fired him or they parted ways or whatever. He's not with the company anymore, but they kept the rights to Metal Gear. And this is the first game to come out with no Kojima. And honestly, honestly, as someone who was very aware of Kojima's um, umbrage at being kept on the series and as someone who was not really the biggest fan of his later work anyway, it's fine that he's gone. I think it's totally fine. So... Metal Gear Survive, very different from the previous Metal Gear games. You play a generic character called the Captain. Uh, They call you the Captain because you don't speak in cutscenes, but when people refer to you, they call you the Captain. Uh, You pick a soldier who was on, I don't know, the Metal Gear base at the end of Metal Gear Solid Five. Turns out that, according to the story of this game, there are these portals which appear throughout the world, and they suck people into this alternate dimension. And you... uh, 
a bunch of like Metal Gear stuff gets sucked into this alternate dimension. You wash up there and you need to wait for it. Survive. That's really what this fucking game is about. It's about surviving. So what that entails is gathering food, gathering water, building shelter, finding survivors, uh, crafting weapons and clothing and basically just doing basic survival stuff. And this all happens with the uh, mechanics of the Metal Gear games. So just from the outset, I want to be really, really fucking clear about that because I know a lot of people who have nothing but bad things to say about this game because it's not a Metal Gear game, except it is. I mean, it is a Metal Gear game. It uses the same mechanics. It is simply a different iteration of the Metal Gear series. I mean, we've had other Metal Gear games before. We've had some like card-based ones on the, the PSP. We've had, uh, you know, Revengeance, which is more of like a fighter. I mean, there's been offshoots, so don't act like this is something new. This is just another offshoot. Anyway, enough enough making excuses for the game. I think this game is <laughs> fucking fantastic. Uh, as you start up, they take you through this really super exhaustive tutorial, which is great. Because not only am I a tutorial guy, this game has so many fucking systems. It's loaded with systems, and I think it's just like system on top of system. But it's good because... A lot of this stuff is about, you know, your weapons and your crafting and like what's going on in your home base and how much food you need to eat. I mean, there's tons of information, tons of systems, and I'm really glad that they walk you through it the way they do because um, when they dropped us into the beta, we had no fucking idea what was going on and it was really, really overwhelming, confusing, but now it feels like second nature after I've taken the time to learn everything. Um, so basically you start off with nothing. Um, you have to like find some food right away. You have to find water right away. And all you can find is like dirty water, which gives you diarrhea. And the diarrhea sound is horrible. Let me tell you the sound effect of your stomach gurgling when you're about to have like a mess happen is just like, Oh dear, I don't want to drink this water anymore. It's really, it's really hard to listen to. Um, but you find some goats or you find, um, desert gerbils and you like roast them up and you eat a little bit, drink some dirty water. And then you just have to like gather some stuff. Um, you have a very rudimentary home base uh, which has like, you know, some real basic stuff, uh, weapons, crafting table, uh, a little AI guy where you can cash in missions or find missions, uh, just real basic stuff. So you just kind of wander around and find stuff, a lot of exploration. So if you like exploration, this game has tons of exploration. And the thing that's really cool about it is that there are like these safe zones and then there are these unsafe zones. Um, in this world, there's dust. It's not actual dust, but it's like this giant weird... I don't know, diaphanous cloud of poisonous gas. And so when you're in a safe zone and clear zone, you can walk around, you can see real far. It's no problem at all. But when you go into the dust areas, you have to have a gas mask. So like you have a limited time to breathe. Visibility is fucking terrible. Like you, sometimes you can only see like five feet in front of you and there's all sorts of monsters in the dust and everything. So it feels like really tense. Like you go back and forth between being in the well-lit safe zone where you can see bad guys from a mile away and you can, you know, you know exactly where you're going. The map works. When you get inside the dust, map stops working. You don't know where you are. Sometimes you get turned around. There's zombies and stuff. It's really, like, kind of stressful. Um, but in, in a good way, because it feels like you're actually really in the moment, and it can be really intense. So I like I like the def, uh, the difference between the clear zones and the dust zones. It's, it's a really good dichotomy. Also, uh, I really am a huge fan of the base building. It is so satisfying. Um... Every time you get more materials, you can gather like wood and metal and stuff. Like you go to, you find all these wreck things all over the place because these portals have been dropping stuff from earth into this dimension. You'll find like a car just randomly in the middle of someplace, or you'll find like 
a box of, I don't know, gasoline or something. And like, you just kind of find stuff as you wander because it's like this giant, like Bermuda triangle receptacle from earth. And so you find these <laughs> random things. Uh, so you scavenge as much as you can, you bring it back and like slowly bit by bit, you build up your base and it is like the most fucking satisfying thing to like have to work really hard, kill, uh, you know, these zombies that you encounter out in the dust, you know, dodge the zombies, like find your way through, like struggle, struggle. Um, you're drinking this shitty water and eating this really bad food. But then as you build up your base, you know, you get like a fence around your base and so you don't have to worry about zombies coming in your base. That's a huge step. Makes you feel really happy when you got a fence around your place. You know, you get like uh, a metal pot so you can boil your water and you can have clean water, which is like amazing. And it's such a small thing. But like after suffering through like four hours of having diarrhea in the game to finally like get rid of that stomach bug and like just drink regular water. It's so like, like it's like the, 10,000 birthdays at once. You're like, you're so happy that you can drink clean water again. Um, I was using a stick for a long time as a weapon because I couldn't find another weapon. And when I found a broken gun and I fixed it, I'm like, yes, I got a gun. I can shoot dudes. Like, of course I need to make bullets. That was a whole other thing. But at least I found a gun. Like it was, it was happy times, right? So like this game is perfect in the way that it denies you so many things that you would have in any other game. And also in the Metal Gear games, like it denies you like, even health, like, you know, you don't have as much food to heal yourself anytime that you want to. You don't have clean water to drink. Like, you're tired, your stamina runs out a lot, and you're just, you're not powerful. Like, you're very disempowered, and you don't have much, so that when you finally do work hard and have these successes and build up your base, like, it feels just, like, amazingly satisfying. I mean, now, I think I'm maybe two-thirds of the way through the game. I've got, like, double fencing around my base. I've got, like, uh, a grill. I've got a smoker. I've got like this, like, you know, food storage units. I've got goats in a cage. I can get goat milk. I've got like <laughs> tents. So I don't have to sleep on the ground anymore. I've got like water purification going. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm fucking big bowling out here. I got like all this stuff and I'm super comfortable. I got like a fucking M16 I can shoot dudes with. I got like flaming arrows. And so like the journey from going from I'm starving and dying of thirst in this desert and I'm going to shit all the water in my body out and die to I'm blowing zombies away with an M16 from behind two layers of barbed wire fence and I'm totally safe is like an amazing, it's an amazing scale up. Like it feels so empowering and so satisfying. So I love, I love that feeling and it's so well done. I mean, the balance between feeling safe in your base and then going out feeling really unsafe, wondering, do you have enough food and water? Are you going to make it back in time? Do you have enough oxygen? Can you carry all this shit back? Because you actually have encumbrance too. So if you carry too much, at first, it's fine, and then, like, you walk a little slower because you're really weighed down, and if you keep carrying more stuff, your, your character, like, just can't walk, and if you get surrounded by zombies, fucking game over for you. So you gotta really be judicious about what you carry. I mean, there's, there's so many survival elements, I mean, that have been done in other games, but they are so well-balanced here, and the feeling, I mean, just that feeling of, like, reward, risk versus reward, effort versus reward, when you finally get that reward, it is just like the most amazing fucking feeling. I can't, I can't think of another game where all I did was I, I found a potato. I was like talking about this on Twitter for like three fucking days. I found a potato at a base and I'm like, oh my God, it's a potato. And I brought it back and it was the beginning of my agricultural effort. So like I had been starving this whole time, like catch a gerbil, eat a gerbil. It only fills you up for like a little while because it's a teeny tiny animal. Every once in a while you find a goat or something that feeds a little while longer, but you're still starving. You find this potato and you plant these potato fields. And then all of a sudden, like every six hours, it produces like another potato. Oh my God. Like I was like, yes, that is the best feeling I can feed myself. I'm not going to starve. I've got fucking potatoes. I mean, it was just like 
what other game makes you so excited about finding a fucking potato? Like no other game does that. <laughs> I was just like through through the roof about this fucking potato. So, I mean, it takes such simple things that we take for granted and even that other survival games do, but it makes you really feel like it is the best reward. It is the most amazing thing to happen when you finally find something good, you know? Like, when I found my bow and arrow for the first time after using nothing but a stick, I'm like, oh my god, thank god, I've got a bow and an arrow, holy shit! And, you know, most games would give you that from the start, or you would just, like, punch two trees and craft it, like, right away. Like, I didn't find a bow and arrow for, like, fucking three or four hours, dude. Like, walking around with a stick? I mean... <laughs> The feeling of, of power, um, the power scale, the power curve of this game is great. Like, it's right on target. Uh, and I really take a lot of ownership in what I've built so far and in my character. I mean, I love this game. I think this game is fantastic. I, I've i seen a lot of people really shit talk it and just have nothing but negative things to say about it. And I got to be like, your head is not in the right place. I mean, if you're a person who doesn't like survival games, that's fair. But if you are going to take this game at its face and take it for what it is, and it tells you, up front, Metal Gear Survive. It is it is telling you in the title what this game is about. Uh, don't don't like take away from what it's doing. I think it is an amazing accomplishment. I think this is really like a wonderful game. I've had like a total blast playing this. I think about it when I'm out playing it. I when I come back home, it's the first thing I play. I'm loving it, dude. I absolutely think this game is fantastic. Okay, I have things to say. I'm listening. All right. First of all, this game sounds terrible. second of all i never thought i would bring this comparison together but and i mean this in a good way this sounds like kind of what the last of us should have been interesting a lot of similarities a lot of similarities i mean i think the last of us is way more action focused because oh you know i that's i'm actually glad you said that because um a lot of people were like shit talking the fact that there are zombies in this game um so when you go to this other dimension if you stay there long enough you get infected like the lore of the game is that anybody who gets sucked into a portal goes to this dimension they're normal people at first but if you stay there long enough you get infected and then you become like this zombie where like the top of your head blows off and it's replaced by this crystal (laughs) it's really weird uh but it's very good for visibility and you have no doubts whatsoever about who's a zombie and who's not um but they're not the focus of the game is not fighting zombies like this is not really like a zombie killing game i mean you will do that you will defend your base from zombies and you will kill them out in the field and avoid them a lot of avoiding uh but it's really about like building your base and they're more like environmental hazards whereas i think in the last of us like it was really aggressive combat like they you know a lot of cover a lot of going around corners and sneaking and stealthing um i i don't think that it has the same combat focus at all like the same feeling of like finding bandages, crafting things, but way more pronounced in Survive, uh, whereas it was just kind of like a, a quickie thing you did in Last of Us. I think similar themes for sure, but combat is just not really that much of a focus in Metal Gear. It's more about just building up your base, finding resources, and surviving that way, not just combat. Well, I say that in a sense of... Um, because just to preface everyone who's listening, I, I played The Last of Us twice, as a matter of fact, and I didn't really... I mean, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I mean, my my history with The Last of Us on the show is pretty well documented. But um, um, I had read um, a while ago when The Last of Us came out and had agreed with uh, criticism that falls along the lines of, you know, The Last of Us sets up this world where it's supposed to be 
really dangerous and really scarce of resources. And it kind of makes you think that it's going to be like a Cormac McCarthy, you know, the road kind of situation where like you're scraping by, you don't have anything to fight with, you don't have any resources and the world is dangerous and it's dark and you're kind of just like fending for your life every step of the way. But in actuality, The Last of Us actually gives you a lot of stuff. Like you have a gun, you have, you may not be able to hold a ton of bullets, but you can hold enough bullets. There's crafting materials in every single room you walk in. I mean, I was rarely without bullets, melee weapons, and several different kinds of like, like the nail bombs and stuff like that, or healing items. So I feel like I mean, obviously, if they had put The Last of Us out and it had been a lot more resource scarce, I feel like that's sort of like an accommodation they made for to kind of um, make the game more like least common denominator. So it'd be more available to everybody. And maybe if you're playing on the absolutely the hardest difficulty of The Last of Us, maybe it is more scarce. But I like as much as I don't like the idea of Metal Gear Survive as a game for me. Um, I do like the idea of actually being thrust into this environment where resources truly, truly are scarce and you have to spend a lot of time um, scavenging and a lot of time building your base and sort of really getting your resources together in order to truly survive in the world. Because I feel like that's the idea that The Last of Us wanted, but they weren't able to fully execute that because... I feel like less people would have liked that game and Naughty Dog. I mean, they, for as much spectacle and as much technical mastery there is behind their games, they are, in my opinion, very uh, least common denominator. So that way they can draw the biggest audience they possibly can. So this seems like if you had played The Last of Us and maybe had thought about that kind of criticism of the game about how it's not really as like scarce and desperate as the game makes itself out to be, then somehow Metal Gear Survive is sitting there waiting for you to play it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Um, I think there are definitely a lot of parallels for sure. And I do agree that The Last of Us didn't really focus so much on, like, the scraping by resource survival kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's correct. And that is really what Metal Gear Survive is all about. Like, you start with nothing... And you really have to like, I mean, like most of the time you're just like, you're looking for rubber, you're looking for metal, you're looking for anything that you can use to like build your base back at home, you know, back at home. And it wasn't, I mean, it was a while before I started feeling comfortable. I mean, it was like the clouds parted and God had come down and gave me that potato. And I'm like, oh my God, my whole life has changed now. Like that was a huge difference. I mean, um, it's also worth noting that this is, uh, it's basically an open world game. So you can go anywhere you want to at any time. And the world is actually really large. Uh, you will open up. Um, so, so what happens is you can. Ah, so much stuff to talk about. So much to talk about, Corey. <laughs> My brain is freezing up because I got so much to talk about. Uh, you spend a lot of time avoiding zombies because there's a lot of zombies and you can very quickly get overwhelmed. They hit you for a shit ton and there's a lot of them. And if you make noise, more come. And so like it turns bad really quickly. So you spend a lot of time dodging them. But what happens is the things where you really come into contact with the zombies the most is when you need to defend something. So, for example, you're in this open world. It's a really huge open world. And, like, you, it just takes too long to get from point A to point B if you want to get to, like, the furthest edges of the map. And so there will be these little uh, teleport points that will open up. Um, so you find these teleport points and you have to activate them first before you can use them. And when you activate them... Every fucking zombie in, like, a six-block radius comes screaming in. And so that's when you really have to, like, defend yourself. 
that can get really hairy, and that is when it's like really like the most combat heavy that it ever gets. But uh, once you get past those, it's really more about like open world exploring, dodging. I mean, some of the best moments I've had in this game have been like me just surviving. Like for example, I was in a I found an abandoned military base. And so there was an item in there that I needed to get. And there was like, oh my God, there was like 50 zombies, which may not be a lot in another game, but in a game where you have zero bullets and zero guns and you've got a stick and you don't have any bandages, that's a lot of fucking zombies to fight. Like that's like too many, right? So like I ran inside the base, I climbed over a fence, I threw a rock and they all kind of heard it because they're all very noise acute. They all ran towards the rock, and when they ran toward the rock, I laid, like, super flat on top of a box, so I was, like, slightly above eye level for the zombies, and I totally, like, stopped moving, and I wasn't breathing, didn't do anything, and I, I, I could hear them all running past me, right? And when the footsteps stopped, I got up, and I totally started booking, like, the other way, and now my heart was, like, going, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm, like, <laughs> leaving all these guys behind. Of course, they heard me, and they came after me, but I was, I had enough of a lead that I could escape. So stuff like that is like really exciting and, and those are really uh, key moments in the game. I have a lot of moments like that where just by the skin of your teeth you're escaping or, you know, you do this clever little thing where there's no way you could survive that fight, but you you get through it by hiding or by dodging or doing something uh, otherwise. So I really I like that a lot. Um, and the open world, I think, is really done well. Lots of stuff to discover. Lots of little nooks and crannies. Lots of little exciting emergent moments. Um Ah, you know, this game is just really, really well done. I just really, like, enjoy every aspect of it. And uh, if you uh, are, are liking survival, I mean, it's not for everybody. Definitely not for everybody. But if you like survival, or, you know, in fact, a good parallel to this. Did you ever play State of Decay, Corey? I did not. Oh, man. Okay, so State of Decay, uh, I believe it's an Xbox and PC exclusive. I think that is pretty much the best zombie game ever made, where you go into a valley... You have to gather survivors. You can set up a base and a house. You, um, you know, gather resources. You manage people back at home. I mean, there's lots of stuff to do, lots of resources. You, you go out and scavenge other houses for stuff. And it's just like this really slow build to where you, you go from nothing and being scared all the time to having, like, a defensible base and where you can, you know, take care of survivors. I think that really feels a lot like what Metal Gear Survive does, but on, like, a slightly, like, larger scale and less emphasis on managing um, people back home. Uh, but if you liked state of decay which is fantastic and amazing game i feel like metal gear survive is right in that same vein same kind of notes um but more of a you know obviously like a little military slant on it and the extra dimensional stuff is different but um yeah really good i just i i love metal gear survive i have nothing bad to say about it um i've heard some people ding it for microtransactions which i mean I, to be honest with you i haven't seen any microtransactions i've played two-thirds of the game at no point not even once have I been asked to kick in an extra dollar, five dollars? Like nothing comes up. I know people were mad that, oh, if you want a second save slot, that's 10 bucks. You don't need a second save slot. Why would you have a second <laughs> save slot? You would want to do this same like deprivation to yourself two times at the same time. Why would you need a second save slot? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess there are microtransactions. I haven't seen them. I have had literally no interaction with them. And I've been playing this game for like two weeks. So you can't say that the microtransactions are intrusive or that they ruin the game because I've done literally fucking zero of them. And some people have dinged the game because it's not written by Kojima. I say good because you know what? I can fucking understand the story now. I can follow along. <laughs> Makes fucking sense to me. Someone says something and I'm like, yes, I get you. I'm supposed to do this because this makes sense. I like it. So, I mean, whatever. If you're going to hate it, hate it. But you can't really knock it for being a bad game because it's actually a really fantastic game. 
loving every minute of this, uh, really enjoying it, and I uh, very much look forward to uh, pushing on. So definitely a huge thumbs up. The last silly thing I have to say about this is I, to piggyback off of, I think it was last week's banter, it is very obvious to me that you love this game because it's basically Naked and Afraid, the video game. Yeah, yeah, no, dude. I was. <laughs> it's ironic that I started playing this game at the same time I started watching that show because this is Naked and Afraid, the video game. <laughs> it is totally that game. So if you like that show, <laughs> I mean, you're not naked, really. I mean, I guess you can take your clothes off. Walk around in your underwear if you want to. But yeah, this is Naked and Free the video game. If you like that show, this is that game. This game is for you. So <laughs> anyway, I want to give huge, huge, huge thumbs up to Metal Gear Survive. I think this game is great. I really, I got nothing bad to say about it. So I dig it big time. Uh, but enough about Metal Gear Survive. You've got one more scary game to talk about, Corey. Isn't that right? I do. Guilty as charged. Paratopic. I have heard nothing but good things about this. Apparently it's um, a small indie game. Uh, put out by some people who've been around for a while. I don't know them myself, but apparently some people on the Game Critic staff are very familiar with them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've heard nothing but like raves. So all I know is that it's like scary and it's short and it's apparently set in the Midwest. So Corey Motley, please tell us all about Paratopic. Okay, so it is, I think it's all of those things. So you're pretty accurate. Um, this is a first person, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a first-person horror game because it's not really, like, a horror game. It's more of, like, an unsettling, kind of, like, slightly disturbing game. It's not like a... I mean, this is, like, the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. Like, you're not being chased by anything. You know, it's not, like, direct horror. This is more of, like, up my alley. Like, like things about the world are so surreal that you're just kind of, like, not quite sure what's going on, and it kind of sticks with you in that way. But this is a game that's modeled very similarly to um, Virginia, which was out on PlayStation 4 last year, which was inspired heavily by 30 Flights of Loving. This game is very similar to those in the sense that it's a very kind of pared down, like mechanically pared down game where most of it is just you walking around in first person. There's some dialogue sections with uh, you can select different dialogue trees to go down. And it does uh, the jump cut thing where kind of unexpectedly in the middle of scenes it'll just jump cut you to the next scene or it'll jump cut you like you know 100 feet from where you were standing a minute ago or something like that to kind of move the story along faster um so it has all those things in common with the other games and this was developed by three people um according to the website and i downloaded this off i still don't know how to pronounce this correctly itch.io or itch.io that's how i say it um uh, it's on PC. I don't think it's on consoles yet. It's on Windows and Mac. It's like five fifty or something on PC. I went ahead and kicked in for eight ninety nine. You can get the soundtrack. So I was like, why not? I'll support them a little extra. So I spent eight ninety nine on it, which I think is a pretty fair price. Um, on the storefront page, they make it very clear that this game is only about an hour long tops, which you know I love. I love short games. Um, I timed myself. It took me 37 minutes to beat this game. So it's Oh, God. Get uh, your money back, dude. They totally shortchanged you, man. Nah, oh, God. I mean, <laughs> God, what a ripoff. I think in their defense, I'm pretty sure on the store page, it says that it's like 30 to 50 minutes long. So technically, I fell within that gap of 30 to 60 minutes. Okay, um, fair. Fair enough. Man. And and I mean, it was only like, it, if you want the cheapest you can get, it's like 550 or like 599 or something like that. So, you know, pretty, you know, I mean, maybe some people would say that $6 is way too much for a 40 minute game experience considering on steam you can get a game for 
$2 that lasts 40 hours or something, but I'm not going to argue price versus how long you can play a game right now. Um, basically, this game is about... Um, God, it's I don't even know how to describe this game. So you play as multiple different people, um, and it's about sort of like this conspiracy kind of smuggling like VHS tape smuggling ring thing that's going on. And like in part of it, you are playing as a character and you're in kind of like a musty apartment and you have been set up to do this deal where you're smuggling a box of videotapes across the border. And I don't know what border it is. I don't know if it's Mexico. I don't know if it's Canada. I don't know if it's some, cause they never say, you know, like this game is in Missouri or something. It's just like, you're just there. Um, but you're transporting this box of videotapes across the across the border, whatever the border is. Um, for part of the game, you are, I guess, an assassin, which I didn't realize until after I finished the game and like read through the game description again. Um, and then for part of the game, you are someone who is like kind of exploring the wilderness and you're out with your camera, uh, kind of like on a hiking trip, I guess. And the game, I don't think the game is linearly told, but I might be wrong about that um, because it kind of jumps back and forth among the three characters at any given moment. Um, but basically, it's just about... I mean, if you can put this together because it's a very abstract game, it's kind of about the smuggling ring. Like in the apartment, for example, whenever you're playing as the guy who's smuggling the videotapes across the border, there's like a this kind of weird woman outside of his apartment or his, um, his like apartment door because it's in like a, a building... Um, uh, that's like asking him about the tapes and like it's kind of like she's talking about it kind of like it's a drug like she's like oh I need another one will you give me another one and you can like say yes or no to her and other things will happen and the interesting thing for me is whenever I first started this game I tried to play it a few days ago and I made the mistake of starting to play it and I was really tired and I was like total like literally dozing off in front of the computer and that's not to say anything bad about the game I was just extremely tired so I was like 15 minutes in and I had, the game kind of starts with a dialogue tree, and then about five minutes later, you get a second dialogue tree that's kind of unrelated to the first one. And I had played through it, and then I stopped playing, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to go to bed. I don't want to play this game when I'm falling asleep. And little did I know, the game does not feature a save system, which it does not tell you up front. So oh, I know no. I know it's kind of a drag, but I mean, it's only like 40 minutes long, so it's not that big of a deal. Um but I kind of wish the game would have told you that up front. But just as a heads up, anybody listening, if you play this, which is it is a game I recommend, um, play it in one sitting because you basically have no other choice to unless you just leave it running on your PC and walk away and come back to it. Um, but the interesting thing was the second time I went back, I was like, because I played it all in one sitting the second time, I chose a different dialogue choices and some different things happened. So I thought that was interesting. It doesn't just give you the pure illusion of having dialogue trees for dialogue's sake. It actually, uh, I mean, minimally, it didn't massively affect anything going on, at least not that I know of, because I haven't played it all the way through a second time. Um, but it, the, the dialogue actually had small effects on like s small things and little scenes that you saw, and um, kind of like a little bit about, kind of like some weird stuff happened the first time I played it, and it didn't happen the second time. So, um, and I mean weird in like a good way, like in a disturbing way. Um, but, I mean, I don't really... I can't really say a whole lot else about the game without spoiling it because it's so short. But, um, and, like, I'll open it up for questions if you have any after this, Brad. But it's just, like... 
I mean, this is kind of like whenever we were talking about North and about uh, Damarong and those games a few weeks ago. Like, it's just this weird kind of unnerving, disturbing PC indie experience. These are the kind of experiences I like where you can get into a game, play it for, you know, an hour tops, finish it in that time. And it's just this kind of like slightly janky but interesting thing that sticks with you that doesn't feel like everything else you've played it definitely has its own identity and I just really like the way it felt even though I was kind of scratching my head whenever I was done with it but it's still like like interesting enough for me to think about it pretty much every day since I finished it um but I don't know it's at the same time much like North and those other games it's not a game I would absolutely recommend to anyone because it's just so weird and it doesn't feel like everything else but if you're open to those kind of experiences, I would recommend this game. And um, I don't know what else to say about it. So do you have any questions or anything? I mean, I, I don't want to ask too many questions because, you know, we're not doing a spoiler section. And this game is only like an hour long at best. So I don't want to. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, I mean, an hour, there's how much can there be to talk about? Right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I'm getting what you're saying. And I think I've got a pretty good feel for what you're saying. But I guess... I mean, are you just like in terms of just interaction, like are you just like walking around and looking at things or are you like doing things? It seems kind of vague. Like what like what kind of interactions are you doing? So sometimes um, sometimes you are doing things and sometimes you're just walking around. Like at the beginning, it opens with a dialogue situation. So you're seeing everything in front of you. It's not just like a black screen, but you're having a discussion with somebody and the voices in this game are kind of. Like, the people, the dialogue is in English, but the the voice clips of the people talking, it kind of sounds like the teachers from Charlie Brown a little bit. Like, it's kind of this, like, grumbled, like, voice that's kind of spoken very brokenly. And, like, if the game did not have subtitles, it would be impossible to tell what these people are saying. Like, it's that broken. But it's really interestingly done and really, um, like, eerie in a way. So it, like, starts with a dialogue situation. And there's, like, a scene where you are... Um, driving, like there's a couple of driving scenes where it's first person, you're in your car and you're like listening to a radio and you're just kind of like turning the steering wheel back and forth as you're driving down these highways, Um, which is actually, those are my least favorite scenes of the game because they go on a little bit too long and they're just kind of weird and they don't really feel interesting. I think those are there to make, to make the player feel uncomfortable, but instead of feeling uncomfortable, I just felt kind of bored. Um, and then there's some, I, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of like the thing that like, uh, spec ops the line did where it's like, oh, we're going to make this game really boring. So that way you'll be bored when you play it. And like, that doesn't really, I don't like that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, saying that they did it on purpose, but it's a little bit of that. And then like the areas where you're exploring the woods, like those are probably where the most like quote unquote, like game play is. Cause you're like walking through the woods, you're trying to find there's stuff to explore. There's like maybe a little cabin. Um, There's like streams that you can walk up and down. You have a camera so you can equip the camera to your eye and you can take pictures of things. I don't know. I still don't know exactly what the camera, uh, what the camera functions as because there's like birds that are kind of, you know, flying around in the trees and you can aim the camera lens at the birds and the little reticle on the lens will turn green when you aim it at a bird and you can take a picture. But I don't know if the character you're playing as is like a bird watcher or if it's just like a thing in the game or something because there's no objective. It's not like you have to take a picture of five birds and then you get to continue. You just kind of have the camera. 
But I would be interested to know, and I don't know if this answer is out there anywhere because this is such an indie game. Like, if you use the camera different ways, does it affect the story? Or, like, how much of the dialogue options really affects later things in the game? Um, but that, uh, I mean, it's basically dialogue choices, exploring the wilderness, a little bit of driving, and, like, kind of exploring your apartment a little bit. Uh, but no scene... Driving scenes aside, none of them last any longer than like a few minutes before you're on to the next scene, I think. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I don't want to ask too many questions because, I mean, you know, it's such a small thing. I think that we would be doing a disservice by dissecting the whole thing there. But I just want to ask, so like in, in total, would you, I mean, I guess, did you end up liking this and did you feel it was successful at what it was doing? And also, would you recommend it to somebody who in general is not super in love with like the, I don't know, I mean... Is it fair to call it a walking sim? Is it like a <laughs> in that neighborhood? I mean, it's close enough. It's roundabout. So, would you recommend it to somebody who generally doesn't like those? And also, did you feel like it was it was good at what it did? I I think it's good at what it does. I think it is successful on the mission that it sets out on. And I would not recommend it to people who are not interested in this kind of genre. But if you are, or if you're open to experimentation in games, I would, I would not hesitate to recommend this. Now, more specifically, would you recommend it to me? I, oh man, I, I would only because you can beat it in half an hour. Because I know sometimes like with Get Even, for example, you stuck with it for maybe like an hour and then bailed. That's all you'd have to stick with it to get through it in this game, you know, to get okay. through the whole thing. I don't know if you'd like it, but I would still recommend it to you because I know you're open-minded enough to at least take in this kind of experience. So just by virtue of its brevity, I could probably get through the whole thing just because I can power through an hour. Okay, so that that is that is a pretty fair assumption. <laughs> like a backhanded I can't compliment. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I might end up liking it in an hour. I mean, I respect any game that gets in, gets out, and is done. I mean, I you know the brevity is just is so undervalued these days so all right sounds like a very interesting thing and if you can get it for 550 or whatever you want to pay that sounds like a good price maybe i will check it out although i hate to be that guy but i mean god i gotta say oh you know like oh maybe it'll come to ps4 maybe it'll come to switch or something like anything to get me off of my pc like i don't like the game <laughs> on my pc but we'll see we'll see i don't know what, what's going on but sounds like an interesting one uh any final thoughts before we uh wrap up with this first segment my very, very last thought on the game is uh, just before the show, I went to Metacritic to look up some of the just to see if there was any more developer information or kind of get a get a you know temperature for the game on ratings. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I would just like you to know that on Metacritic, the one and only review logged review for this game is from Game Critics. Is it really? Is it really? Yeah. Literally Ooh, the only, and it's an eight out of ten, so that's a good review. But it's literally the only one for the entire game is from Game Critics. So good hang on, hang us. excuse all the clicking, everybody. I'm going to Metacritic right now. I want to see. <laughs> I want to check it out real quick because I love when we're like up there. Don't mind that. Don't don't listen to that tapping. Don't pay attention to that. Here we go. Let's find out. Looking, 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 looking. <laughs> coming up I gotta slow it's kind of a drag too because i don't think metacritic i mean obviously they can't average a review score from a single review but i think they need three or four reviews before they put out an average score so if you just go to like the home page of it it doesn't look like it has a metacritic score but if you go to the reviews you'll see that um game critics is the only one there yeah they need i think an average of four before they can get put together their like metascore thing so i mean mm. i mean i guess it makes sense you don't want like one one dude i mean you know you can't give them all that power i suppose but 
All right. Anyway, I will. Ch oh, there it is. There it is. Yay. <laughs> Yay, game critics. Hooray. All right. Cool. Well, pair topic sounds like a good one. Um, I, I think I'll probably check it out. I can uh, I can squeeze an hour in somewhere. So thank you for covering that, Corey. Good. And thank you. You actually I had heard murmurs of this on Twitter, but you officially recommended it to me because of somebody else that played it a few weeks ago. So thank you for putting it back on my radar because I probably would have forgotten about it if it weren't for you. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. All right, man, I got nothing else for this section. I think we should probably uh, wrap it up and get to our uh, banter section, eh? Totally. Should we, like, officially sign off and go to Q&A or do Q&A and then sign off? Let's do let's do the official sign off for people who don't want to stick around for that, and then we will do Q, Q and gay. <laughs> Q and gay. Um, okay, so if you've listened this far uh, in the show, thank you so much for sticking around with us. Uh, our official Games Chat official is going to be over, uh, you know, going forward after the closing. We're going to do our normal closeout move right on into the Q&A. Like, one or two of the questions in Q&A are video game related, but pretty much everything else is about uh, personal stuff, about, um, there's a lot of questions um, about me and about gay shit, so that's why we're calling it Q and Gay uh, this time around. Um, so if you're interested in listening if we talk about gay shit, then stick on around after the closing, because I will be discussing a lot of it. Um, I mean, I guess, but... Uh, but if you aren't uh, and want to uh, head out now, uh, I don't blame you. I probably wouldn't want to stick around and listen to me talk about gay shit either. So uh, that brings us to kind of the official end of the games chat for the show. Um, you can get in touch with us at any point if you'd like to, much like Jeroen, who sent us our lovely questions for later. If you want to send us a bunch of questions about gay shit, please feel free. Um, and the way you can do that... So you can email us at sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. You can also post comments for the show directly when they go up on gamecritics.com as a comment on the show page. And last but not least, we're also on Twitter as a collective show. You can find us on Twitter at sovideogames, only one O and so, despite the fact that we introduced the show as the So Video Games Podcast. <laughs> um, and probably arguably the best way to get in touch with us is just to contact Brad and I directly on Twitter. Um, we do monitor the game critics, uh, handle on Twitter, but if you send a, either of us a tweet, that's the best way to get a hold of us. At least for me, I know it is. Um, Brad, if somebody wants to get a hold of you on Twitter, how would they go about that? Uh, my Twitter handle is my name, Brad Galloway, B R A D G A L L A W A Y all A's, no O's. Excellent. And my Twitter handle is also my first and last name. It is Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. And that will bring us to the official end of the Sofity Games podcast. We're going to sign off, but we'll be recording the Q&A after. So please stick around if you want to listen to that. If not, we will see you next week for episode 78. But until then, this is bye from Corey. And bye from Brad. We'll see you next time. All right, so now we are um, actually weirdly doing this show in the correct chronological order. Like Corey said at the beginning, we usually do the banter first and do the show last, but we flipped this around because we felt like we had a lot to talk about uh, in the banter. And instead of our usual banter, we actually got a lot of questions um, from one of our super fans, uh, Jeroen, who is currently in Germany. Jeroen is a longtime fan, longtime listener, even uh, from back in the Game Critics days. Good guy. 
We love Jeroen. And every once in a while, he'll pop up and send us like a bazillion questions, uh, which is exactly what happened here. So Jeroen, this entire segment is all you, buddy. So please uh, enjoy. Um, so just also, uh, we did have to edit your questions for length because we're actually kind of pressed for time right now. But we will get to almost all of them. There were a couple you asked, which we're not going to get to. Uh, I will I will email you directly because I appreciate you as a listener and I appreciate you as someone who's a fan. So I will get to your questions that we don't answer here on email. But we did get most of them here and we did have to edit most of these for length. And that's actually a really funny joke, which will make itself apparent oh, in just a few moments. That's right, folks. I feel like I feel like we got oh, no. I feel like we got some dick jokes coming up. Uh, so rather than like. Uh, well, okay, I'm going to give a preface. Most of these questions, not game-related, and a lot of these questions are gay-related. So, Corey and I, before the show, we wanted to come up with a good segment title. Uh, I came up with uh, Gay Q&A. Corey did me one better by saying Q and Gay. I think he actually came up with the better title. So, we're going with a brand new So Video Game segment kicking off right now today. Q and Gay. Uh, so, no, I'll read the questions. Corey will give the answers. What this really is, this is... The welcome to the So Video Gay podcast no, with our oh. Q and Gay section. <laughs> you are full of gems today, sir. You are on point. I gotta say. No, don't compliment me for that. That was terrible. That's pretty good. That made me laugh. That's pretty good. Okay, so let's get to it because we are in a time schedule and we do want to get through a lot of these really interesting questions. So I'm just gonna just start. Uh, so one, two, three. We got a bunch. Here's some Jeroen. All these questions from Jeroen. Jeroen, this is all you, buddy. Corey. This might be a controversial question, but do you feel gay men are different than straight guys apart from their sexual preference? I've met gay men during my life, and I do not want to generalize, but are gay men different than straight <laughs> men socially? Like, more empathetic, less aggressive, less macho, that sort of thing. In your opinion, are gay men in general less interesting than straight men? I could imagine that some gay men kind of look down on straight guys because they are sometimes less emotionally developed, macho, and so forth. Corey, your response. Oh boy. Okay, so I I love questions like this, but this is a very this is a very meaty question that I could probably talk for like an hour on. So please, Brad, if I'm talking too long, just snap your fingers a few times and be like, hey, you need to wrap this up because we need shall, to move on. Shall I give um, you two snaps if you talk too long? <laughs> <laughs> so let me let, I'll try to make this concise, but I'm not the best at concision. So, um, and I also, just to be clear, I do not speak on behalf of every gay man out there. I don't speak on behalf of bisexual men. I don't speak on behalf of lesbians or bisexual women. No, I no, Corey, you are, you're representing the entire LGBTQ <laughs> community right now. You are the, the spokesperson. Yes. You are on point. The Kinsey scale is strapped to my shoulders and I am ready to represent the whole thing. Um, I will speak from my experiences and from what I've experienced in the world and things that I think, but none of this might be true. Some of it might be true. I just, it's going to be my experiences. So um, I will have no research to back any of this up except for my own experiences. Um, so at the heart of the matter of gay men being different than straight men, I really don't think there's a difference. Obviously, um, you know, some people think that gay men, that the thing that defines gay men is the fact that they have sex with other men. I don't think that's what defines gay men. I think what defines gay men is the capacity to love other men, like unconditionally love in a romantic way another man. And of course, you have 
I mean, maybe you don't have sex, but, uh, you know, more, more often than not, you probably will be having some sexual contact with a man that you're romantically involved in, or you might have sexual contact with a man that you are not romantically involved in. But the idea of homosexuality gets really wrapped around the idea of gay sex in the act and not about gay romance or loving or feeling um, passion for another man. Um, so that's kind of the first thing I want to clarify. But on... Um, I like on if you're thinking about like gay men versus straight men like what are the differences I really honestly don't think there are any differences um, because within any spectrum of people you're gonna find you're gonna find various examples of the way people act I mean there's a lot of there I mean in in like examples in the media say or in movies or common stereotypical examples of gay men would be you know like the feminine gay man that you know like flops his wrist around and says like oh girl and is like sassy and snaps his fingers and you know and stuff like that like that's kind of what a lot of people think of when they think of gay men they think of someone that's very um effeminate that is uh you know very feminine acting basically acting like a woman and there's nothing wrong with that there are plenty of gay men out there that act like that but there's also plenty of gay men out there that have a very masculine presence that don't uh, you know, act feminine, that don't act that, you know, they're, cause sometimes like gay men, their voices sound more, uh, more feminine. Um, you know, there's some gay men out there that don't, uh, sound like that at all, or don't act that way. And at the, uh, on the same token, uh, whenever you talk about straight men, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, we think of a stereotypical straight guy as like a tall, dark and handsome, you know, maybe like a brooding, like strong warrior type. It's kind of like the archetype for a man, but I mean, if you really sit there and think about all the men you know in your life, like how many of those men are actually tall, dark and handsome and never talk about their feelings and never, you know, and are like constantly like warriors and protectors. I mean, most of the men that I know in my life, most of the straight men are not like that. I mean, I know a lot of straight men who are very open about their feelings, who are uh, okay with talking about relationship issues or talking about stuff like that. And I mean, there's a whole spectrum of, of you know ways that gay men can act and straight men can act i think what gay men get away with is that people expect gay men to be more feminine and to be more open about their emotions and to be more uh, more sort of like free and authentic because society kind of encourages that and that's what we've seen um you know as examples of gay men in the past but really um toxic masculinity is to blame here for straight men not acting the way not not acting feminine i mean it's because straight men can act whatever, whichever way, however they want. But if you have three straight guys in a room and one of them is acting feminine, they're probably scared that the other guys are going to make fun of them because that's kind of like a toxic masculinity nightmare. Um, but they don't have to be, you know, it's sort of like about not really caring about what other people think, but society doesn't always say that. Um, and a lot of gay men have, um, have like repressed um, homophobic tendencies. Like if you go on any porn site and look up gay male porn, there's a, an overloaded amount of videos that describe the performers as straight because there's this fantasy that, you know, straight men are like sexy and strong and it's like a taboo, you know, for straight men like, ooh, like we got a straight guy to have sex with another guy for this porn video. But I'm sure nine times out of 10, the guy is actually gay or bisexual. But there's this fantasy of, you know, fantasizing about straight men because they're like 
sort of like the more va- like the more masculine you are, the more valued you are in society as a man. And so, you know, what's more valuable is withholding masculinity than a straight man who is, you know, AKA like a hundred percent straight, even though I don't think there is such a thing. I think in a society, men need to be more open to the idea of exploring their sexual options, just like women are, because you hear a lot more stories about women being sexually adventurous with other women even if they decide, oh, that's not for me, or they decide, you know, um, you know, I guess I'm not bisexual or I'm not a lesbian, but at least I gave it a shot or gave it multiple shots. But there's a lot of dudes out there who, like, the, even just the idea of, like, messing around with another guy just, like, you know, it's, like, unheard of. Like, I would never do this rather than be open to the idea of it. Um and I think that it's easy to it's easy for gay men to fall for straight men in that way uh, because they sort of like represent what uh, in, a, in a society what masculinity is supposed to mean, um, you know, as being like strong, like a straight man, because femininity is not valued in our society as much as it should be. And if you are a gay man, you are equated with being feminine. And that's not um, that's not what. American society values. Um, Brad, I probably went over my allotted time to talk about that, but did I answer all of it or do you think I left anything out or made any points that you want to reflect on? I mean, you, you answered like, I mean, so in the answer you gave, there's like a hundred hours of unpacking that you should probably do. Like, you know, we don't have time for that here, but I think that you, you really touched on a lot of like really key social issues. I mean, I am a straight guy and I was listening to his question and it's, I mean, like my response to Jeroen would be, kind of like just echoing what you said. I mean, I think the toxic masculinity is really the biggest problem where people, I mean, straight guys are not encouraged to really talk about your feelings. They're not encouraged to be sensitive. They're not encouraged uh, to cry at movies. I mean, you know, like we talk about we cry at movies all the time. And it, you know, like my family, like, you know, my dad, man, he would have beat me if I had like cried or if I had been upset about something or, you know, like he, he was not open to that like you know the role models I had in my life were not really all about having feelings be something that a guy talked about um luckily I didn't cotton to that I mean I I kind of found my own way and I really actually like talking about feelings and I like being open and I like having a lot of communication uh, which is probably why most of my close friends are either gay or they're women like most of my I don't have very many straight guy friends because when I do meet a straight guy I like I, I don't have anything to talk about with them because like <laughs> I don't watch sports and I don't fix motorcycles and I don't shoot guns. And like, I hate the stereotype, but like every guy I talk to, it's always like, it's either work or it's about sports. And I just, I don't give a shit about that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think that's really, I think that's really the key. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. And I think you were, I really value that answer because I think you hit on so many different aspects of it. But, um, yeah, I think just men not being able to be open with their feelings, not being taught that feelings are okay, and not being comfortable to communicate with them is really, I think, what, what Jeroen is kind of getting at there in kind of a roundabout way, where, where you're saying that gay men are okay to talk about those things, uh, and straight men are, are, you know, traditionally, or society in America are not okay. So that's the heart of it, or at least the part that I would address anyway. So I think we're, I think we're kind of on the same page here. Yeah, and I mean, and just to go back very slightly on something that you were just talking about, um, that's really a fascinating thing about whenever you first meet a straight guy. Like, whenever, like, even as a gay man, this happens. Whenever you first meet a straight guy, like, you know, most of the time in my experience, and probably in your experience, too, from what you said, um, like, you meet another guy, and you feel pressured to talk about stereotypically masculine things, like talking about, like, fixing cars and, like, shit like that, because the last thing you want to do in American society, even though this is totally, like, ridiculous, is 
you know, come face to face with another guy that you've never met, that you've never met before, meet him, and then immediately, um, like, start being emotional or start talking about things that men like, quote unquote, aren't supposed to talk about. Like if, like if you met, like if two straight guys met and one of them started talking about like how he wears makeup, like that would maybe get him punched or something because we live in a society where men committing feminine acts is so looked down on that people are assaulted and sexually assaulted and murdered for stuff like that on a daily basis. So it's like you constantly have to sort of like keep up this masculine guard around other dudes, even though it's so stupid, but that's just like how, I mean, I don't know if this is like a global thing, but that is like the sense of American masculinity that I get on a daily basis. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think that's very true because, you know, whenever you go into, I mean, as a, as a straight guy walking into room, it all, it always defaults down to who is the alpha in the room, who is the boss, who's in charge. And it, you know, being physical is also a big part of that too. I think probably, you know, maybe one factor in me being more interested in communication and feelings and stuff is because I'm so short. We talked about that on the last show. <laughs> um, and But being 5'5", five five, I was never the tallest guy in any room. I was never the biggest, strongest guy in any room. I was always like the smallest. And so I was never the guy who was in charge. I mean, maybe I knew more than everybody else in that room. Maybe I was more competent at whatever we were doing. But simply by the fact of how male power structure works, I was always like, you know, B tier or C tier or whatever, just because I was shorter. Like, you know, nothing I could do about that, but that's just how it is. And so, you know, you can't show weakness or like, you know, you don't want to like expose anything about yourself because then you're constantly afraid that some other guy is going to take advantage of that, whether it's in a physical way or whether they're going to use it to like, you know, demean you somehow or something like it's constantly this like on the defense all the time. I mean, maybe if you're an, a real tall, buff, handsome alpha male guy, like you don't worry about that. But as someone who was not at the top of the food chain, that was something that's always on my mind, um, you know. Whenever I see some guy, I mean, it always crosses my mind. If I fought this guy, would I be able to beat him or would I be, would I have to run or like, you know, how careful do I need to be? And, and that's something that I think is probably in common with a lot of other people who are not alpha males. So I think that again, circles back to the toxic masculinity and this pressure to be tough and to be dominant all the time, which is really ultimately very unhealthy, I think. Totally. Um, okay. All right, let's move next on. Question. Let, let's move on. Pieces. All right, next <laughs> move on. Next question, also from June. Corey. And that's not his actual voice. I'm just making that up. <laughs> Corey, would you agree with my theory that being a gay man is sexually awesome? <laughs> oh for gosh. me, as a straight guy, I need to talk to women for hours, laugh at stupid jokes or remarks, and work my ass off to get laid. But gay men could probably just cut to the chase, say something witty like, hey, you want to fuck? Since oh men God. in general always want to go, right? So therefore, is being a gay man like winning the lottery since you can fuck your brains out all the time? Corey, your response. Uh, no, it's absolutely not. Because that is another common um, sort of like stereotypical idea about masculinity is that men are all like, like these just like ravenous, horny animals who want to fuck like 20 hours of the day, you know, and then just like drink beer and sleep the other four hours. And <laughs> that's not, that's not true because I mean, there are, there are a lot of, um, I mean, I think that if I were to like put two groups together, like if you put straight men and women together and you put gay men together, I would probably guess that gay men are maybe quicker to hook up or to have sex or like hookup culture is more common among gay men. But I think that like, if you're a straight dude, 
I think that getting sex is not a difficult thing to do, but getting sex from someone you want to get sex from is a difficult thing to do. And I don't mean that in a predatory way. Um, because I mean, this kind of goes on the misconception that like women, that like women don't want sex or that they don't desire sex or that women are not sexual beings because women want sex just as much as men do. But it's, I mean, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak on a woman's behalf, but I think that American culture and maybe global culture, it's much scarier for a woman to, uh, to be in a sexual experience with a man because, you know, sexual assault is much more common with women. Um, men are often more, uh, they're usually more um, of like the aggressors in a sexual misconduct situation over women. So, uh, you know, a lot of women are very careful about, about, you know, relationships and about how they, how they go into them and choosing who they want to engage in sexual contact with. Um, but I mean, gay men, like just because you're a gay man does not mean you want to have sex all the time. Like I am a prime example of someone who's not, I'm not a very sexual being. Like I, I could probably have sexual intercourse like twice a year and be fine. Like I don't have to, like, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I don't mind sex, but it's something that I don't like love doing. Like I don't have to be having sex all the time. Like maybe when I was like 16 or 17, like sure, like, or 18 or 19, you know, in like high school and college years, like, you know, if given the opportunity, yeah, maybe I would have been doing that all the time. But, um, but it's something that just kind of like, you know, like sex kind of gets old to me, but the idea of being romantically intimate does not get old in that situation. Um, so, I mean, I think that there is definitely a misconception among gay culture where, you know, like, because dudes are dudes and dudes are supposed to be horny all the time, that gay men are just, like, fucking all the time. And, I mean, maybe that's true for some people. And maybe, um, you know, like, relationship statuses are more commonly different between gay men than they are with straight couples. But I um, do not... I don't think it's true that being a gay man is sexually awesome because you're just like out fucking all the time. I, I don't think that's true. I think it's possible given society and given, you know, uh, apps like Grindr and Scruff that are kind of like the gay Tinder. But I mean, if you're a straight guy and you download Tinder, you could probably, um, you know, have sex pretty soon after downloading it. Um, but it just might not be, with some like, like your first pick, I guess, but it's the same in the gay community. Like if I downloaded Grinder today, I could probably have someone to fuck in like two hours, but would it be someone I would actually want to fuck? Or would it be someone who is just really horny, who doesn't actually desire me? I don't know. There's a lot going on, but ultimately being gay does not mean that you're horny all the time and having sex all the time just because you're a dude. So bringing the straight guy uh response here i want to circle back to something that jeroon said in his question where he said for me as a straight guy i need to talk to women for hours laugh at stupid jokes or remarks and work my ass off to get laid okay so let's let's hold on right there buddy because <laughs> that's that's pretty major what you just said there i don't know if you even realize like how big of a thing that was that you just said um you sh <laughs> I, I, i'm trying to think of like the best way to even bring this up so oh, it, as a straight guy if all you want to do is fuck like Corey said you can fuck like get one of those apps meet some person women do want sex it's true i know that we are not taught that in american <laughs> culture 
I mean, honestly, like in American culture, I don't think that it's okay for women to be sexual. I don't think that that's really encouraged. I mean, I think women are very often slut shamed or um, devalued if they express any kind of sexual desire. Um, I mean, just from my perspective, I'm not speaking for women, but just from what I've seen and just from what I've what I know from my conversations with women, which which are many, uh, you know, but women do want to have sex. And if all you want to do is fuck, you can do that. Go to a bar, get one of those apps, go out and you can have sex. You don't need to engage in the social aspect of it. And if you feel like talking to women is a hassle and all you really want to do is sex, I would encourage you to not do that. Like, don't pretend to have a relationship with someone because you just want to fuck them. Like, like cut all that out and just say, Hey, do you want to fuck? And if they say no, move on (laughs) and just be really honest and straightforward about what you want, because you're not doing yourself any favors and you're not doing that woman a favor because Maybe she thinks that you actually think her jokes are funny or maybe you think maybe she thinks you're actually interested in her. And how terrible is she going to feel if you go through all this and fuck her and then you're done? You know, like that's not that's not a good way to go. I would I would strongly recommend that you maybe examine your relationship to women and maybe think about being more honest and like changing the priority of how you approach women. I mean, if all you want is, is sex, I would say put that up front. You will get some takers like you will get some takers. People will respond to that. Um not everybody, but there will be certain people who respond to that. And then those are the people that you want to talk to. And those are the people that you want to fuck. And then that will probably solve a lot of your problem. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably the first thing. Um, and also, I mean, I also want to debunk that a little bit too, because I, I would say that I am a sexual person, but I don't want to like fuck all the time. And in my history, like I was not out to fuck all the time. I mean, like, like kind of like Corey said, when I was 16, And the hormones were, like, just biologically raging. Like, yeah, I probably could have fucked, like, ten times a day and been happy to. But once my brain, you know, came back in working order, and once I realized how crazy that is and how out of control that is, I mean, that's not really who I am or not really who I want to be. So, you know, I I have had a string of, like, long-term monogamous relationships where I really value my partner and I'm very choosy about who I want to be with. And they have to be somebody that I really have a strong emotional connection with. And... I just, you know, I've never really been like the straight guy wanting to get out there and go fuck. I mean, if I wanted to, I could have, could have done that many times over the course of my life, but that's not where I'm at. So I want to debunk that a little bit too, that not every guy is out there and just wants to fuck all the time. Some people do, like I know guys who do want to fuck all the time and those guys are out there and nothing wrong with being that guy, but just, you know, be clear about who you are and be honest. And I think it's just like way easier for everyone. So um, not every guy's like that, but if you are, just be straight and just, uh, or, you know, not straight. I mean, just be honest, be, be whatever you want to be, but I mean, be forward and be clear about what you want. So that's, that's the advice I would say about that question. Uh, next question, Corey, since you sometimes, sorry, I can't talk. Since you sometimes <laughs> seem to get all excited talking about other men, like for instance, some of whom you photograph, do you have an open relationship? Um, I, <clears throat> I, I was thinking about this question earlier because I was thinking about something I wanted to say related to it. Um, to answer the question directly, I like Patrick and I do not have, I mean, I don't know. We, we do not classify our relationship as an open marriage, but we're not beyond experimenting outside of our own boundaries. I mean, there have been situations in the past that have happened where, um, you know, we have been, uh, sexually adventurous with other people, um, both separately and in like a threesome setting. And we had, we have made 
the decision. I mean, and this isn't something that happens like every weekend. We're not like a swinging couple that's out, you know, fucking other dudes every weekend. But given, uh, you know, the right setup and the right circumstances and that we both kind of know what's going on, um, we are we have been and continue to be open to the idea of of, you know, experimenting uh, sexually outside of our. Uh, outside of just the monogamy of our relationship, like we're, I guess an easy way to say this is that we're not 100% monogamous. Um, that was maybe what I should have said at the beginning. Um, however, saying that, like I said, that doesn't mean we're on like dating apps and like trying to find dudes to fuck like every weekend. Like we're not, that's not who we are. Um, but if the situation comes our way, um, um, you know, we're not above it. We're not going to turn our backs to like, you know, another couple or another guy or something just because like we're married or we've been in a long-term relationship. Um, and something else I wanted to say, and this is kind of related to the other questions, but because photography came into play, um, this is something that I just wanted to interject and say. Um, so something that I find fascinating about photography is that, um, like, obviously I've been very upfront about on the show is that I photograph a lot of men. I mean, I'm a gay man. I photograph, I, I think that um, I can photograph men and a certain way because I am a gay man. Cause I see them maybe in a, in a way that like a straight man wouldn't see another man. And something that I think is really interesting whenever I photograph men, like last weekend I did a photo shoot with a guy who I had met a while back and he was in town. So we shot in my studio and we did some outdoor stuff and, and then shot uh, some more in the studio. And, um, something that I think is really fascinating. And we had this discussion while we were uh, over dinner between shoots was that, um, you know, we had talked about how we feel like it's more stereotypical or more commonplace for, like, women to be photographed. Like, for women to want to be photographed and to want to show themselves off and to be, like, and to, like, look beautiful for photos. And, you know, I had told the guy I was photographing, like, I think that kind of toxic masculinity comes into play with that because, like, a lot of times, you know, like, say if, like, a straight guy told his other straight guy friend, like, oh, yeah, I'm being photographed in a photo shoot, like you know, one of the guys would maybe be like, oh, like, that's gay or like, oh, something like that. And, you know, kind of look down on it. But I think something interesting that I get to explore in the realm of photographing straight men is like, kind of like, because I'm so open, I'm kind of like an open book about sexuality and about, uh, you know, like not being, uh, you know, uh, like not kind of in toxic masculinity culture that they get to be um, I don't know, they get to be more like thoughtful and more, more open and maybe say things to me that they might not say among other people. And it, it's also not me trying to like lure them into some like trap or anything, but it's just like, I was like, I was complimenting the guy that I photographed last week in certain like facial features he had. And they were like things that he would not have ever thought about because they are like more, um, facial features that people maybe like that women would appreciate on other women, um, and like just like ways that their face is shaped and stuff like that. It sounds really weird. Um, but I feel like I can help and I have done this before, like help men sort of like build their self-esteem in a way uh, by through taking their photos and like showing them, I guess, like how good they look. That sounds really um, like chauvinistic, but um, and sort of like taking them on this journey of like you know, maybe you haven't had people say this to you in a while, but like, you're a really good looking person. Like, look at these photographs of you. Here are features about you that are desirable, that are interesting. Um, and because of, I guess, the way I act around them, they feel more comfortable sort of like opening up to me about certain things. Like there are photos, like the photo shoot I did last week and I didn't shoot like, like nudes or like anything really like sexually explicit, but there are some photos that we took and the guy um, that I photographed had said something to me like, you know, I would appreciate it if you didn't 
like the, here's these like three photos I would appreciate if you didn't share these photos anywhere because like basically only like you and a couple of like girls have kind of seen me in this light and in this position and I don't really feel comfortable showing that off to other people so the fact that in a studio session I can get not can get, but that a, a guy comes to feel that comfortable around me being photographed because being photographed is a very intimate thing. Um, like that makes me feel good. And not, like I said, not in a predatory way, but just in a way where I can sort of like do like an inception kind of things where I like plant these kind of ideas in these straight dudes heads about, you know, the culture of toxic masculinity, how they shouldn't care about what other dudes think and just that kind of thing. So that kind of went off the rails of what the question was asking, but that's just something that I've been thinking about that maybe I haven't talked about on the show before that deals with how I approach photographing men and sort of like talking to them about social issues in a way as I'm photographing them, I guess. So you're basically like taking photos and saving souls. It sounds like Uh, (laughs) it's like a, it's like a therapy session. It's kind of like, you know, like when women like get their nails did and they're like, it's kind of like a, like seeing a therapist and they get to like have their girl time. Maybe that's kind of like what it is for me. Like I'm it's like photo therapy. You like you're, you've created your own niche, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess so. Like the plus side is like, yeah, maybe I'm taking pictures of hot dudes, but like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues around straight men and toxic masculinity where they don't feel comfortable, you know, looking at themselves or feeling comfortable about themselves or appreciating the way their bodies look. And maybe I am, a, a small step in the right direction of helping them to realize that and, for a small really, uh, fee for a small fee you deprogram toxic toxic masculinity <laughs> and they have a glossy eight by ten at the end of it oh my gosh yes <laughs> yes all right moving on next question uh cory was being gay a problem for you in how to deal with it how to accept it and so on uh was high school okay for you or were you teased and bullied because of being gay how did other straight guys treat you when you were younger, like maybe 15 or 25 years old? Well, okay, so to go back, um, I I can't quite remember when I realized I was gay. I think maybe I was like 12 or 13, um, somewhere in there. Um, just sort of like naturally understanding that I like, I guess, liked men over women. Um, I told, I came out to my best friend Sarah first whenever I was 15 and then when i was six i think when i was 16 um no i was about to turn 16 i was like it was like may when i was 15 i turned 16 in july um i came out to my mom and you know my family my immediate family um and i so i was never like super out in high school like i uh i i didn't come out until my senior year or really start like talking about being gay until my senior year of high school but i mean like i I don't think that I come off as super feminine, but I think that I come off feminine enough to where straight guys maybe think that I am not uh, straight if I'm uh, if I'm around them and like conversing with them in any capacity. And so whenever I was younger, I mean, I did I never got like bullied, bullied like nobody ever like punched me in the face or you know like pushed me down or anything, you know, because they suspected I was gay. But I mean, I did get called names every once in a while. Um, nothing like super serious, and not on a lot of occasions. But the weird thing about being a closeted gay person in high school is that, like, whenever I was growing up, it was a very scary thing because there weren't, like, it's not like today's representation where, like, you know, they're, like, we were talking about, like, Love, Simon a few weeks ago where there's, like, multiple movies out in Hollywood about being gay and, like, you know, being able to live your life in the way you want. Like, whenever I was growing up, it wasn't like that. And being gay was very much a taboo. And, I mean, for some people, it totally still is. Um, But... 
um, so I would have people, um, you know, a lot of times in high school, people would ask me if I were gay and I would always say no, because obviously like I was not going to come out on somebody's terms who I didn't even know. Like, you know, somebody in class that I don't even know who's like, Oh, are you gay? And I was like, no, I'm not. Um, but, and at the time that felt really threatening to me, just the fact that somebody would assume that I was gay, even if they didn't know me. Um, and it felt like being bullied, even though it wasn't really being bullied. Um, so, uh, so I was never like super duper bullied about it, but it still felt weird just navigating, um, you know, the world as a closeted gay man. But from being like 15 to 25, I mean, I think I'm lucky enough to, um, to be able to like pass enough as a straight man to where I didn't get a lot of shit for it because a lot of uh, gay men or even straight men who act feminine, like we were talking about earlier with toxic masculinity, I mean, they get bullied for it because uh, femininity is not valued in our society. And especially if you're a man, it's not valued. Um, so, you know, if I had been a super, you know, for lack of a better word, like flamboyant gay man or had been, uh, you know, very feminine whenever I was in school, I probably would have gotten bullied a lot more. Um, maybe I would have been assaulted. You know, there's no there's no telling what could have happened. But because I... Um, you know, passed to a certain extent as a straight man and is not, and I'm not a super feminine guy. Um, I wasn't really treated a whole lot differently. Um, but, uh, and like whenever I got to college, I, but you know, by the time I got to college, I never had any problems. Like, I don't think I've been called like a gay slur probably since I was in high school, um, or, you know, been like bullied for my sexuality. Um, not that I can think of. Uh, and I mean, I tend to surround myself around people who would not treat me that way. So, you know, if somebody's around me and they have a problem with gay people or if it becomes apparent that they're not, you know, down with gay culture at all, I will, uh, you know, pretty much immediately stop associating myself with that person. So um, I've been lucky enough and especially like within, uh, you know, hanging out with like parkour dudes a lot, like the parkour dudes in Omaha and the parkour dudes here in New Orleans, like they don't really treat me any different for being gay. I mean, they all know I'm gay, but they're not like, I don't know. They, I, I'm lucky enough to where they don't treat me different. And I feel like I don't have to act different around them, I guess. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a lot. Did I leave anything out or anything, Brad? No, I think that's good. I think it's a good answer. Um, thank you very much for that answer. Let's move on. Uh, two more <laughs> questions. We're going to be switching gears a little bit, uh, on the next one. And then, uh, we do have actually, one legit game question at the end. We'll save that, <laughs> save that for the closeout. Uh, one more question, though, and I will hit you first to answer this, Corey. Uh, so Jeroen says, I've noticed that you guys discuss minority groups on the show a lot, be it black people, LGBTQ, and so on, especially in recently in regard to movies such as Black Panther and Love, Simon, which we just mentioned. So because you and a lot of other people talk about minority groups a lot, uh, we are, in fact, confirming that these groups exist. Is this kind of discussion actually alienating them further rather than treating them like normal members of society? What do you think, Corey? Um, I, I don't, this is like a super loaded question and I, I understand what, where the question is coming from. Like, cause sort of like what the question is, is like, because we're talking about minority groups and social justice issues a lot, um, does that alienate, them more because we're not sort of like treating minority groups like normal people. And it's true. Like minority groups are normal. I mean, in a way they're normal people like they're, I mean, there's nothing like 
weird about being gay or being black or being, you know, Asian or whatever. Um, but I don't think that discussing them more means that we're alienating them more. I think that the more discussion that is brought about about minority groups and minority issues, um, the more, uh, you know, the more on like a global scale the discussion happens around them, the more that can influence kind of like pop culture and the way pop culture acts. And that sort of feeds back into affirming that, you know, it's okay to be that way because a lot of minority, and it's hard to understand this as somebody who isn't a minority, but um, whenever you're a minority, um, you kind of grow up feeling like you don't belong and like society is not for you and you're kind of living in this like alternate universe. But whenever we have movies like Black Panther or even like Love, Simon or, you know, other other movies uh, that are similar that have similar like minority presences. I mean, it's kind of the difference between talking versus showing like we talk about gay stuff a lot. So obviously there's a lot of gay people out there. You know, if people talk about black people a lot, you know, of course, that's showing that they understand that black people are out there. But whenever you talk about it more, you start seeing it more in representation, like with Black Panther. And then that sort of feeds back into being proud of you know, being proud of who you are and being proud of being a minority and, you know, like Love, Simon, for example, like I was talking about a few minutes ago, like I didn't have anything like that growing up whenever I was in high school. Um, like, I don't think there was a movie, you know, a, a movie aimed at teenagers showing widely across the United States in theaters that had a gay person for a main character. I mean, maybe there was a, a briefly, you know, appearance of a gay side character, but most likely they were a stereotypical version of a gay man that, you know, is like super feminine, um, you know, that didn't really represent across the board what, uh, you know, what gay men act like, I guess. Um, and that's not to say there aren't feminine gay men out there because there are a lot of them and it's totally okay to be that way, but that's the way that they were represented for so long. So to see a movie like Love, Simon, where the main character passes pretty well as straight, but is still going through all these identity issues as a gay man who's navigating his way of coming out that, um, you know, that shows that, you know, I guess that there people are realizing that there are minority audiences out there and they will pay for and love and feel, um, comfortable, more comfortable navigating those spaces as minorities. Um, so that, that was a lot. And I feel like only half answered the question, but Brad, I know you've probably got some stuff to say about this too. Well, it is kind of a difficult one to answer. And like you, I mean, I get why Jeroen is saying that. And I get the idea about that. But I guess, I mean, for me, it's like I want to show that as um, a straight guy who can generally pass as white, that I recognize that other people are different and that I totally support them being different. And I am totally fine with that. I feel like we need to be a little bit more active about showing like acceptance and about equality and, you know, just quietly sitting there and not saying anything is what a lot of people do. And I don't think that really got, that doesn't really do enough because you can sit there and be quiet and still judge people or be racist against people or not approve of people. And nobody really knows because you're not really saying anything and you're not really supporting one way or another. I mean, maybe I'm not out burning a cross on someone's lawn or anything like that, but you don't know what I think because I'm not saying anything. Um, so for me, and again, just speaking for myself here, I... I feel like I need to be more vocal to say, hey, that was awesome. Like this movie was totally black centric. And even though it's not about me and it's not my culture, I think it's awesome that this movie is out there. I'm really glad that people have that choice. I, you know, maybe I'd watch that movie and would really enjoy it, even though it's not for me. Um, you know, kind of the same thing uh, with my wife. Uh, you know, I'm not a woman, but my, I'm married to one. And my wife 
often would re- remark to me and say that when she was growing up, she didn't have a lot of female role models uh, in TV or movies. Like it would always be like the secretary or the love interest or, you know, the femme fatale. And that would be about it. And so whenever we see a movie where there's like this really strong um, female role model, she'll like comment on it. And I'll be like, yeah, it was really cool. Like when we saw, you know, Ray in the new Star Wars movies, you know, it was like, hey, she's like super positive role model she's like in the starring role and there's like a lot of strong women characters in that movie so it's like it's worth it to call them out because then it brings to it your attention that you you like those things and you support those things and you're aware of those things and you want to see more of those things and so for me it feels like i mean maybe other people disagree but for me it feels like for me actually verbally saying something and and like definitively saying i am for these things to me, it feels like it's more of an action step that I can take and it's more positive pushing things in the right direction towards equality and acceptance and understanding rather than me being quiet and nobody really knowing what I think and not really taking a stand either way. Also, um, I also want to say these things out loud because um, for my son, because I'm a father, I have two kids and I go out of my way to call these things out because if my son was around, if I don't say anything, he's not going to know. Like I have to actually say oh, hey, look, this lady is the star of the show and she's not naked and she's being a hero. And isn't that awesome? And he'll be like, oh, okay. Like he'll make note of it, you know? Or like, oh, look at all these black people. Like these black people are totally doing this awesome thing. And look at how cool of a movie that was. And he'll be like, oh, okay, cool. Like you gotta like educate your kids. You gotta be like really active about educating them. And so I try, I mean, just me personally, I try to like really vocalize that a lot to call out to his attention, hey, these are good things. These are things that you should be for. These are things that are positive. Um, you got to really be proactive when you, you teach people about stuff like that. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I feel like I would rather err on the side of saying too much and and maybe bringing things up and being vocal rather than me sitting back and just not really taking a stand and no one really knowing how I feel. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from on that. Any last thoughts, Corey? Uh, that was very well said. Um, I don't have anything to add, but I, I feel you on everything you just said. All right. All right. Last question. And now, uh, so before we get to the last question, uh, I do want to thank Jeroen for all these questions. These, some of these are very difficult questions. Uh, Corey, I want to thank you very much for your honesty and your (laughs) openness, uh, in answering all of these. I think that was really brave and I'm really glad you did that. So thank you very much for that. And hopefully people listening will really appreciate this discussion that we're having. And in some way, I hope that this chat will like shed some positivity towards some of our listeners or maybe open uh, up into our own perspectives, how we live and how we live life. Because I feel like we're a couple of really, really, really guys who try to do the right thing, right? Like I try to feel like we're trying to be on the forces of good. And hopefully that, you know, by discussing things out in the open and not being embarrassed, we can push that a little bit more towards, towards the light side. So thank you very much, Corey, for your openness, honesty. And thank you, Jeroen, for these questions. Some of these were really good to talk about. Um, but we will end on... A video game question. Let's just video go back to video games. Question. Yay, video games. Let's talk about video games. Full uh, circle. Final, full circle. Last question of the, the banter and last last thing of the show. Uh, finally, which of the Telltale games are must play? And also, Jiren, boy, how did you... I really want to know your thought process, buddy, because you hit us with all these real hard-hitting questions, and at the end, what's up with Telltale Games? Like, how did you even come up with this? I, I love this, though. I love it. It is. I do love it, too. I love questions. I love questions. And people listening, please send us your questions, because as we have just proven, we will answer fucking anything, dude. So send us all your questions. Anyway. Uh, uh, all right. Which of the Telltale Games are must-play? Jeroen says, I've only played The Walking Dead Season 1, but which of the others are also highly recommended? Corey, what say you? 
I have only played... I played all of Walking Dead Season 1. I played the first episode of Tales from the Borderlands. And I played the Bridge episode from Walking Dead, the whatever, like 300 Days or whatever it was called that bridged Season 1 and Season 2. Um, I, I think... I mean, definitely I think Walking Dead Season 1 is probably maybe arguably the very best thing that Telltale has ever made. I mean, it's the thing that really kind of put them on the map after they had been doing stuff like this for a while. Um, I thought, I didn't think Walking Season, Walking Dead Season 1 was as great as everybody else did, but I still really liked it. I cried like three times playing it, so it's uh, very intense. It's emotional. Um, it has, it's a pretty good roller coaster. Um, I don't, I've heard really good things about Tales of the Borderlands, but I could not get into it after playing one episode. Um, but that was more along the lines of me being over Telltale's kind of stagnant game design. Um, I feel like almost everybody likes everything Telltale does, but I also feel like the kind of people that like them are the kind of people that actively seek out these kind of gaming experiences. Like, I don't think anything they make is bad, but you just have to be on board with what they're doing. But I do think that, as far as I know, Walking Dead Season 1 would probably be, like, the one that everybody holds up from them as the best thing they've created. All right, as for me, um, I have played a lot of Telltale games. Probably I have played the majority of Telltale games. Uh, Walking Dead Season 1, by far, by a large margin, is the best thing they've ever done. But you've already played that, so you already know how good that is. Uh, that is the thing that it would hold up as, like, the must-play. Um, I will also say that uh, I started playing Tales from the Borderlands. I did not like Episode 1, but I went back and played more, and it actually got legitimately like a lot better as it went on. So I would also hold up Tales from the Borderlands as one that if you like this style of game and you want more, this is one that is worth playing. And I say that as someone who is bored of the Telltale formula and as someone who actually fucking doesn't give a shit about Borderlands. <laughs> uh, I think Tales from the Borderlands is worth playing and it does get a lot better after the first episode. Uh, also, I have not played this but a lot of people have told me kind of the same thing with Batman, the most recent Batman from Telltale. I've heard the first episode was really sketchy, and then it got really good at the end. So a lot of people are telling me it is worth it to go back and play the Batman. I haven't played that myself. I can't vouch for it. But a lot of people who I trust are saying, oh, oh, it actually is not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Go back and check out the Batman. So I actually plan to play that pretty soon. Um, but other than that, I am not really much of a Telltale fan anymore. I think a lot of the good talent left the company and they have been resting on their laurels for far too long. I mean, they hit a home run with Walking Dead and then they just, they really overcommitted themselves and they didn't really do enough to keep the excitement and energy going. They just started making carbon copies of stuff. Um, I thought that, um, what is that one that was based on fables? It was, uh, oh, The Wolf Among Us. The Wolf Among Us. Not bad. I mean, not bad. It helps if you know about Fables, if you read the, the Fables comic book. Um, worth playing if you played Fables. If you haven't played the Fables comic book, maybe not worth playing. So I will let you to decide for yourself on that one. Uh, but most of the Telltale stuff recently has been really boring, really just standard, really unexciting. And as a, in general, I'm not a fan of the direction they went because I feel like they've really lost their way when it came to um, game design. I, I don't like interactive movies where all you do 
is push square once every 10 minutes. So that's kind of where they're at right now. <laughs> um, if you want to talk about Telltale-like games, though, we talked about The Council on this show recently. Remember we talked about The Council, Corey? Oh, yeah. Have you? Did you play it or not yet? I have not. It's on my radar, but I have not. I haven't purchased it, and I have not played it yet. So, Jeroen, if you're interested in these kind of games, I would strongly, strongly recommend you check out The Council Episode 1. Um, it is in the vein of a Telltale game, but this shows what it looks like when someone decides to keep iterating on gameplay and to keep offering players choice and to offer meaningful decisions. Uh, it's a very, very interesting game mechanically, and I thought that from a story perspective, also incredibly interesting. Some of the voice acting is pretty rough, but it <laughs> does Telltale better than Telltale does these days. So my two picks would be Walking Dead Season 1 and The Council. But if you want more, Tales from Borderlands is real good, and people are telling me Batman. So there you go. Hopefully that has answered your question. Any final wrap-up, Corey, or are you good on that? Uh, I will just second that I've heard good things about Batman. That's also their most recent game that's still kind of um, coming. They're st are they still releasing episodes for that right now, or is it all out? The final episode just came out, so it is now complete. Oh, okay, awesome. Um, yeah, I've heard good things about it too as well, But uh, and I think I actually have it from playstation plus like i think it was a free game or something but i have not played it but yes i've heard good things about it too but i have not played it yeah i think i actually i think they were giving away the entire season a couple months ago so i think i did grab it so i might just go in fact now that we're talking about it maybe i'll go download it right now but uh <laughs> there you go jeroon hopefully we have answered your questions i know there was a couple that we didn't answer but i will email you those directly and we thank you again for your questions and thanks to everybody for listening Hopefully we did justice to all of those really difficult, complicated social topics. <laughs> uh, not an easy subject to tackle. Wouldn't you agree, Corey? I would agree. And also, I th it, this didn't occur to me until earlier, but a good point that you're making here is, um, or maybe you probably didn't mean to make this, but in my mind you did. Um, <laughs> if, if any of this is such a sad preface, that in a really stupid way. Um, if you're listening to the show and you want to send us questions, but you don't want us to discuss them on air, because um, like some of the questions like Brad said from Jeroen, he's just going to, there are more questions about Brad's life and he just uh, feels more comfortable emailing Jeroen back and talking so they can talk about it over email. Um, you can totally email the show um, or tweet us a question and we can just discuss it in writing or in private. Like we don't have to have a giant discussion on the show about something if you're just curious about something. So uh, that's a good point too. Like we don't, we, like if you want to send us questions, but you're not necessarily interested in us having like an hour long discussion about them on the show, like that can be arranged, I guess. Yeah. And totally. If you want to also send us a question, but you don't want us to read your name, if you would rather have it be anonymous, we will 1000% honor that. And we will keep it absolutely anonymous. If you want to just send us something and say, Hey, you know, I want to know about X, Y, Z, but please don't read my name off because of whatever reason. Totally fine. We will keep it anonymous. We have no problem um, at all. So I think that's it. I think uh, we have covered, boy, quite the show today, huh? Quite the show. Quite the show. All right, dude, I think it's time to wrap it up. What do you say? I would, although I love recording the show, I would also love nothing more than to wrap it up right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we're out. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. See you next week.